We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This is the Gator Nation Football Podcast with your hosts, Alan Williams and James DiVirgilio. This place is an insane asylum in the swamp! Oh, my! Now we know we're just a bunch of average stiffs. Scared money don't make money, you know? Welcome back to the podcast, Gator Nation. I'm Alan Williams. Of course, I'm here with James DiVirgilio. The cocktail party happened. The Gators maybe had one too many. They go down. It's a sad affair. It's a sad Halloween. But we're here to tell you what happened, why it happened, and get you ready for those weirdos in College Station. James, how you doing over there on a Halloween Monday? And firing shots at the A&M fans already. <laughs> uh, there's one thing we've They're learned. They're not listening. It's fine. I don't know about that. If we've learned one thing this year, it seems like the opposing fans find our podcast each week, and they do listen, Alan. So They're get... lovable weirdos. I, I have a fondness for them. I mean, they are weird, but we'll get to that. All right. If we get hate mail, I'm sending it straight to you. <laughs> Please. Uh, at any rate, if you like the content on this very podcast, you can follow us on social media. You can sub to our YouTube channel for film reviews. And you can become a patron on Patreon, where you can drop us a dono, also become a donoer. Either way, you can... Eventually a dono legend. (laughs) A dono legend down the road. You can support, essentially, our efforts here to bring you this content each and every week. Uh, The amount of content we have brought you has grown from eight years ago, when we started with about a 30-minute podcast, to what now tends to be a a two-and-a-half-hour-long podcast, plus two-plus hours of YouTube content. Uh, good times are had each and every week. And we could not do this without, obviously, your help as listeners submitting your questions to us, your coaching corners. And we certainly could not do it without our producer, B-Red, and with Carly the Commissioner out there in Colorado. Two tremendous people, by the way. Editing our videos, uh, all just volunteering their services and time. We also now have the GNFP Sammy, where we have 75 people that uh, were blowing up that thread on Saturday during the game, for good reason. There was a lot to discuss. If you want to hop on that, you can check our social media and find the link to that in WhatsApp. Uh, great job there to, to our listener, Sammy, setting that up and then moderating it, organizing it. And uh, hopefully it will serve as an elevated discussion group. That's kind of the idea. We know there's message boards. There's all sorts of things that exist where people just sort of talk a lot of whatever they want to talk about. But I think the goal for this one is to have uh, perhaps the most articulate conversation you can in the spirit about. of the GNFP community. Correct, football and the Gators. All right, we had two new donors this week, two new patrons. Welcome to the family. 
to Ishan Skula. We hope that's correct. If that's not right, Ishan, and it could be multiple things, let us know. We try to get everything right. Coming with a medium dono, and then Alex Marty, who may be starting a Discord group. So Alex wrote to me and said, hey, we thought about Discord, and I said, yes, we have. Uh, Sammy wanted to go away from that for reasons X, Y, Z. But in case you find yourself as a big Discorder, look out for that potentially in the future if one Alex Marty wants to become the commissioner of that. All, <laughs> right. all these threats. Yeah, welcome to those two. Yeah, still sitting on the throne is James Ridge, who is 0-1 now in his reign as a king. But let's be real, we were playing Georgia. That was going to be a very unlikely victory for him. He is presiding, though, over very trying times as we're going to discuss on this podcast several huge news items occurred one last week one today on halloween a lot of stuff to get to but first we have to honor our dono legends and former kings let's do it barry jenkins guy tumbleson cooper and kylie craig jason walker the big homie lil payton constantine double o alexander leventhal diego rivera Bill Hood, James Newton, Nathan Jeter, Stashmi, Bobby Boucher, Frank Marshallisi, Mike Wechter, Tim Kane, Nicholas Isaac, Mike, Mark Jackson, Tim Hundrick, James Truett, Gus O'Leary, Brad Wilson, Mark Mitchell, Chris Folsom, Dr. Matthew Galloway, Jamie Galliano, Aaron Jeter, Jason Landry, Michael Reeves, Jason Johnson, Zach Sparks, Mark Rubenstein, Tyler Rumery, Craig Scarado. All right. The Gators lose 42 to 20. You know, we both picked almost the exact score here. You were at 1334. I was at 1335. Very close in some sense. You just elevated a little bit there by a touchdown. The game kind of went how we thought it most likely would. Obviously, it got a little wild there in the middle. Um, they <laughs> Vegas is crazy, right? This is a 22.5-point spread. <laughs> so you were either cutting it close one way or the other. Um yeah, let's let's get to our predictions here. Um, your keys of the game for a Gator win: the defense needed to create four turnovers. They they got three. It's pretty close, really. yeah. And that's why we had, I think, a moment. A moment, obviously, down one for score sure. was that was because of those turnovers. That was exactly true. Uh, seven plays of twenty yards or more. We had four. I asked for five sacks from the defense to win. They you got did zero. ask for five. Mm-hmm. They got more zero. turnovers though, and a four and a half. Yards per carry, not close to that, 2.9. And that, I think, tells a lot of the story of the game there, too. Yeah, I think it tells you that the defensive keys were close Mm -hmm. and the offensive keys were not anywhere near close enough. And that's largely, largely the story of the game. The defense wasn't good enough to win, probably, because on the other side, they gave up so many yards, so many big plays. But they probably played better than maybe we thought they could have rather than the offense sort of playing more like normal. And that's kind of what happened, I think, in the football game. Agreed. Yeah, they made some big plays and kind of did some more of the standard fare. Well, we'll get into them, obviously. Um, Opening thoughts here. You were at the game. I was in Jacksonville, but not at the game. Uh, What was the atmosphere like at the cocktail party in general outside the stadium, inside the stadium? I would be shocked if you asked this question to everyone that was there and and everyone to a man or woman, boy or girl, child or or 50-year veteran of the game wouldn't have said it was by far the most muted Hmm. and worst atmosphere in the history of that game. I've been to almost every one for the past 20-plus years with the exception of really like two. And this game was like an exhibition preseason NFL game. 
they were by far the fewest Gator fans I've ever seen at this game, including when McIlwain was going to get fired that year and a bunch of other really bad years. And the Georgia fans were content to not really care. And that is a sad reflection of where we are. For all of my desiring Tennessee to be really good so the Florida-Tennessee rivalry can come back, we are now Tennessee to Florida. I mean, Tennessee to Georgia. Yikes. uh, Basically in mentality. And, and, you know, that's weird for people like you and I. Any modern era fan, if you're obviously like 60 or older, you were used to Georgia being really good and then it flipped. But if you're you and I, we just murder Georgia every single year. Yeah. And Georgia was like this little brother that you beat. We up wanted on. it was like that 2007 game when they won. It was like, hey, this is going to spice it up a little bit. Yeah, this is weird. And now it's just the opposite. Like all the stuff that used to exist with Georgia and just the chip on their shoulder, it's just not there. They just roll in, destroy us, roll out. Business as usual doesn't matter. They still have some of the same features that we see: dropped passes, weird stuff happening against us. So they haven't totally got that monkey off their back, but. In general, the atmosphere was way muted. For I sure. Mean, really, really down. Weird weather day too, but just not a lot of excitement, not a lot of care. And I think if you're a proponent, I hate to say this, Alan, if you are a proponent of playing this game not in Jacksonville, this was your game to circle and say, don't play this game in Jacksonville. Well, I mean, like, people this, don't care, if this which game is in- not true. But I think yeah. it, it came at a really bad time where Kirby wants nothing more than to move this game. And he can point out and be like, does anybody really care? I mean, people weren't really even there. Yeah, I'm, uh, I'm going to end up fighting Kirby over this, I think. Um, but yeah, I think it came through even on the TV. It felt muted. It didn't they didn't feel like the energy. But, I mean, where Florida's at, where Georgia's at, and the lack of like just general friskiness from this Florida team in terms of the momentum coming into the game. Yeah, and I think, you know... Uh, Maybe a blunt to that was, you know, Cormani McLean committing to Miami the, you know, two days before on Thursday night, um, which we don't talk recruiting here, but the, you know, have a top five recruit who's seemed to be like kind of in Florida's back pocket for most of the cycle, at least if, you know, that Florida had a good chance. And it seemed like all of the signs reporting to him to come to Florida. Alabama was the other one thought. And then Miami comes out of nowhere. You know, of course the rumors are dropping like huge bags on him, which, you know, it's like technically illegal, but kind of, kind of legal, whatever. Um, I think that probably blunted people's, I don't know, desire to like really be engaged with the game. Not everybody. Some people don't even know that happened obviously, but um, probably is a little bit of a factor in there too. Oh, I think for sure for Florida fans, especially those in the know, everyone listening to this podcast, I shouldn't say everyone, almost everyone was probably familiar with the Cormani news. Even if you didn't follow recruiting closely, you probably had a friend who would have said to you, right. hey, this was a big deal. Billy Napier himself, I think was, we said, was trying to orchestrate some positive news heading into a Florida-Georgia game he probably was going to lose. And it was going to be, hey, we lost this game, but we're top five in recruiting we're announcing ourselves, we're cruising. And that was a shot right to the bow of Florida's battleship by Miami. And I think it's worth saying, Alan, in my opinion, we said this before, a couple of really high-profile recruits that Napier has lost, I'm convinced he would not have lost pre-NIL. Napier right. is is the coach that these players and their families want to play for. But if you are Cormani's family... 
it is very hard for anyone, including any of you in this audience right now, to turn down the numbers that are rumored to have been thrown at him. Numbers that Bama and Florida were not going to throw at him. And quite frankly, no school should throw at any high school athlete where you have no idea how they're going to end up. As much as I love stargazing, half of your five stars don't wind up doing much of anything. Or and just the other turn half, out to be like average. Right, and the other half make the NFL. So it's, the bottom line is to throw out millions of dollars for a high school kid is crazy. But most importantly, it's really, I think, unfortunate. Napier sits in the SEC. He also sits in the state of Florida. He's also directly competing with a school in Miami that is a program that is totally in shambles with a coach who I think I, I do not believe in at all as an actual football coach, who's a, quote, recruiter, who's not... He's not recruiting McLean. He didn't recruit him at all. It's just money being dropped by boosters. And Cristobal is a good recruiter, but this is very different. And I do think we have to allow for this this early Wild West stuff going on, Alan, where you just cannot blame Napier for, quote, not closing a five-star kid right now. Sure. You can't. I think, again, pre-NIL, I think Napier in this very cycle probably closes three to four five stars, and he's right on path with Urban Meyer's recruiting class. I believe that to be true based upon everything I have seen and heard. But this is a very different early start. And again, he's sandwiched between the two biggest defenders of this, A&M and Miami. Really unfortunate. So we'll keep an eye on it. But if you're thinking Napier can't close five stars, I think you really have to rethink that. Because that's not what's been happening in these high-profile cases. And Miami, what they're doing is wildly unsustainable. And I, I firmly believe the wheels are going to fall off. As we said before this season, Alan, these money teams, the wheels are going to fall off. These are entitled kids with big paycheck dollars that are not there for school even at all. And if things don't go their way, they don't play. If things go south or sideways, they're going to be cancers to their football teams. That's the generic general scenario that happens when you put money at the top of your cultural pyramid, period. So that's my; those are my thoughts on Cremani. It was a huge, huge blow, again, to Florida's battleship of momentum. It really stopped it cold because that was going to push Florida kind of into the Tier 1, Tier 2 recruiting class. It was going to shape a narrative that losing to Georgia didn't matter because we were moving ahead. And now Florida's recruiting class looks much more like the ones we've seen the previous coaches have. And the year two class, the bump class, which is generally your best kind of announcement as a head coach, it can still get to that tier two segment. It's not over yet, but it definitely took a a major, major shot there. And I think that had the in the know Florida fans reeling entering the Georgia game. And then you have the Georgia game. And now it's sort of like, where are we? Yeah. And we'll have plenty of time to talk about recruiting. And we don't like to get caught up in individual players because, you know, you lose player 100, you pick up player 125. It doesn't really matter. Like it's all going to be in the on the watch. When you there's like a top five guy, you you feel that for sure. Um, and then we're going to get to this. We're going to discuss it in more detail. Brent Cox today dismissed from the program. Uh, you know the reasons weren't given, but uh, we're going to talk about what that means for Florida moving forward. Yeah, After wow, and we'll say wow for yeah, now, and wow. we'll dissect what Billy did say in the press conference, and we'll talk about that after we talk about Florida, Georgia. But certainly, wow, they're just in the past seven days, the news has shifted from super positive momentum. I mean, Florida was like nationally covered as this recruiting, like here we come, recruiting pundits, other other you know sort of not followers of Florida's program are noticing Florida on the recruiting trail. 
and then it was just woof gone. Lose to Georgia, lose Cox question mark, and it could feel like the wheels are coming off, or it could feel like if you're trusting Billy Napier when he said back in January, you're going to get frustrated with this. You're going to not like a lot of what I'm going to have to do. It's going to get worse before it gets better. That's maybe where you're stuck between right now, those two positions. Okay, I have a couple of how are you feeling when dot, dot, dot questions. Um, How are we we feeling down 28-3 at the half? Uh, I can go first on this. It felt like the worst of the scenarios that we had outlined. It feels like, okay, floor's not going to be close. But this is bottom of the barrel, like no first downs in the first five drives. Georgia scoring seemingly at will. Yeah, felt like this is a Florida team that is under talented, certainly in comparison to Georgia, but is just not in their league in any kind of arena. How about you? Yeah, it felt anti-competitive. That's what it felt like. You know, you want to be competitive. Right now, the Detroit Lions in the NFL are one and six. But with the exception of, I think, one game, they've been right there. They've been competitive. They could have won at least half of those football games. Florida, at halftime, was a four and three football team that was not even remotely competitive with Georgia. That's disappointing. And we knew we were going to lose this game in all likelihood. But the way it looked and felt, as you said, was the bottom side of, of how you wanted this game to feel. All right, the next one is, how are you feeling when we pulled within 8 to 20 to 28? I mean, felt like there was some magic happening and that some of the voodoo that comes sometimes creeps into the Halloween cocktail party might be happening. It didn't feel sustainable, but it was a really fun moment. Even if it, I'm not sure what if the fans got super engaged or not or what it felt like in the stadium, but watching it at home, Kind of was like, wait, what's going on? What's happening here? I mean, it it felt magic because it was magic. <laughs> yeah. But then I think also the the analytical football person in me said Georgia's going to just start running the football every play, which they should have done right. the whole game. Florida's best friend was seemingly that Georgia was like trying to prove, maybe that they've continued to try to prove that Stenson Bennett, in my opinion. It's something that he's not. And I kind of feel like the SEC quarterback curmudgeon because I'm always hating on Will Levis because I don't see it on film. And I'm hating on Stetson Stetson Bennett rather, sorry, because I'm always, I just don't see it on film. And Stetson's different to hate on because he's not going to play in the NFL and he's a walk-on. And hating on is not the right word. But basically that Stetson is deficient in areas. And for a team like Georgia that is so talented, it's still so bizarre to have a quarterback who really is limited. But Georgia seemingly wants to press the issue that he's a good passer, and he's just not. I mean, several of Florida's interceptions, Georgia has wide open players. The, the Bernie pick is underthrown by 10 yards, or that's maybe a touchdown down the sideline to the running back. But to your point, Alan, it's 28-20, and I'm thinking Georgia's tight, and they were tight, and they're second down and long. And Stetson makes that rollout left, throw across his body, danger zone throw. Yeah, Kimber's got great coverage, fantastic catch by the Georgia receiver. If that play doesn't happen, maybe just maybe 
that magic continued for one drive longer, and maybe that made it go to the end of the game. But then Georgia ran three or four run plays, touchdown, and you just kind of felt like this game's probably... It's crazy to think that. For sure. But you kind of felt like this game's probably over. They are running the ball at will. They've always been able to do it. Now they're going to do it because the game retightened. But football's a weird thing, college football especially. I would, I would That one play sticks out in my mind, which is a weird play. Kind of gets lost as maybe the biggest play of the entire game. That's where all that game pressure built towards and Stetson threw his best pass of the football game. And that probably kind of, I think, right there changed where things were going. Agreed. I I was going to point to the same thing. It felt like Florida had a chance there just to apply basic game pressure, right? Nothing nothing crazy happened on that. You, You force a punt or something like that, but you don't need a goal line fumble or anything. And who knows? I think we've seen players worse than Stetson Bennett implode. Certainly in a rivalry game like this where all of a sudden you feel like you can't do anything right. Florida's talented enough to hang with you if they can compete at a high enough level. So that was fun. Um, I didn't put too much stock in it, as you said. I felt like the same analysis. If they do what they like just the basic ability of, of them to run the ball. If they continue to do that, I don't think Florida's going to be able to do anything about it. And obviously they could not. Um, but the Gators did claw back into this game just as they have in every game that they've lost. Um, you know, someone was asking me, does that mean anything to you? I would say yes. I think that that shows, especially over time repeatedly, that the team will continue to compete, will not give up. This is like, you know, part of Billy Napier's cultural building program. And, we, and we've discussed this before, but I think it's worth mentioning in these games that if you have a team that will continue to compete, you will win games that more often than you would otherwise. And you're not going to have a, a team that just implodes and quits on a season. You're, you're going to avoid some of those downward spirals, which I think is really important, especially in years like this or in a you know kind of a reloading, rebuilding year, let's say, you know, a few years down the line when, you have to replace a lot of leadership. And so, and I'm again, not into moral victories, but if you're watching trajectory and arcs and you're looking for building blocks, I think it is significant. I, I wouldn't just want to wipe it away as in the Gators got beat by 22, so it doesn't matter. I think it's so significant that if Napier were to become the coach we all hope he becomes, something like that will mean something. You'll look back on it and think, this is when we knew that, that he may have had something within him as a culture builder. I think there's deficiencies we've been talking about, but as a culture builder, this team made a football game yet again, which they've done every single time they've been knocked seemingly out of the ring. And 28-3 is knockout. No, forget about being on the canvas, out of the ring itself. And they enter back in the canvas or the octagon, take your (laughs) pick, and they make it a fight again. And they've done that against Tennessee, did it against LSU, did it again here against Georgia. And that is a remarkable trait. Uh, and that should not be taken lightly in college football in year one. And that could be maybe the most meaningful thing we've seen all year because, hey, stuff's nasty. You got leftover players from previous coaching regimes. It's 28 3. I'm going to roll this junk up. We're going to lose, I don't know, 49 nothing. Right. Like Texas beat Oklahoma, perhaps. Right. But they didn't. They made it within one score of a defending national champion football team. 
that is, you know, number one in the country. And they made that a football game and that should not be taken lightly. So yeah, I agree. That means a lot. So outside of the kind of weird third quarter, this game went as expected for the most part, I think for us, like, you know, you can never predict fully. Um, Anything surprising to you before we get into the details of it? I mean, yeah. What was surprising is that Trey Dean had his best (laughs) football game as, as a Gator by far. Yeah. He put a lot of good stuff on film and it's like, well, where has this been every single game on film, but you got to give credit where credit's due. And he played his best game in in a Gators uniform, which I thought was great. Uh, And that was probably the only thing that was truly surprising. I mean, if you listen to our, our prep episode, you heard how dominant Georgia was versus Florida in just about every single statistical category. So you were relying on just pure hope. If you thought something might be different. I mean, Georgia's just a better football team. Uh, so, you know, the comeback, which we talked about, was surprising. And I think you got to say it's shocking that Trey Dean did what he did on film in this game. It just basically right. came out of nowhere. That's not something you would expect to see, but good for him, uh, for sure. And he's still at his usual, you know, flex at the end of a play, and we're down 42-20. So it's not like he's all of a sudden become a perfect player on film. But all in all, by far his best game in a, in a Florida uniform. Yeah, it's good. It's fun to highlight that even at the top. I mean, good job by Trey Dean. I think... You know, the Georgia tight ends, Brock Bowers, as advertised, and even Stetson Bennett. This is a this is weird because this is a team. If you put basically a top level quarterback on this team, I don't think anybody touches them, but they're vulnerable because he, he is who he is. Now, he provides them leadership and tangibles, other things, but so you can't just replace talent. And, you know, not think about those other pieces, but I'm, you know, and just in fairness to you, James, I think talking about him and even Will Levis, you're, you're reacting against the narrative. If Will Levis was like, guys, intriguing guy, maybe like a third or fourth round pick. There'd be almost no commentary on him. Be like, yeah, you know, look at, he made some good plays. Here's what he needs to improve. But it's like, he's going to be the number one pick in the draft. It's like, well, what? And Bennett, Georgia wants him to be this guy that he's clearly not. Instead of living with who he is, which he has a lot to bring to the table as a freaking walk on who's just won a national championship for them. So I mean, we've been not in his corner, but anyway, that's probably beside the point. Um, an unsurprising performance, maybe from the Gator offense. Let's get to them. Uh, four of 16 on third down. I mean, four, four. of 16. But that's not surprising. This is a terrible third down offense in general now facing a top defense. Yeah, and a lot of those third and long. If you look at that, there's a lot of... So many third and long. Eight, nine, 10, 13, and then 0 of 3 and fourth down. So some of those third down numbers get skewed because you... We even talked about this last week with um, our last Florida opponent on LSU. Would get to like fourth and one. So they didn't convert on third down, but then they easily picked up fourth down. So that even like skews those efficiency numbers against Florida. They're actually worse. Um, so 0 of 3 on fourth down, a few really key ones. Uh, allowed three sacks. Florida had 371 yards, 271 passing, which is a very respectable effort. That That's a, a surprising number. Yes. For sure. Yes. Um a hundred yards rushing, which is not going to win you the football game 
with this type of Florida offense. Now you can win a game with 100 yards rushing if you're a different style of team, but for this Florida team, 2.9 yards per carry, you're you're done. You could just read me that stat probably, and I could tell you we lost the game. Uh, AR 18 to 37, one TD, 48 completion rate. ETN, the other notable. Stat line here, maybe 11 carries, 53 yards, and a touchdown. And once again, I think this is a big statement. I think he was the best player on the field for either team. I mean, he's that good right now. Yeah. he's. It doesn't matter who he plays against. It looks the same. And I can tell you that every scout sees that. He's running around Georgia defenders like he's running around pick, your, pick any team you want this season's defenders. It doesn't look different. And yeah. that... That is yeah. When he that is electric. When stuff. he took the edge against Georgia to pick up that first down, you know, he doesn't look like he's going that fast, but he's plenty fast enough if you're going to get the edge there. I mean, I would have to say Brock Bowers is probably you know more of a I don't know right spot. I, I mean, Bowers is a beast, but I'm telling you, like I, I was, love ETN. it was no, it was really surprising to me. Like I figured ETN's a, I, we love ETN. Right, but it looked ex- it looked exactly the same. If I just if I could just like grayscale the teams out so you couldn't tell, and I showed you highlight packages from every team we played this year, it would look no different. And that defense looked different against every other one of our players. It looked way different. Didn't look different against him. I mean, he was yeah. he was making a miss, carving him up. He looks like the real deal, and that's exciting because you know he's the real deal. But now you really know he's the real deal, even though the rest of his offense for the most part isn't on pace with him. And normally running backs will kind of struggle in that situation. For sure. So anyway, point is with Bowers, the whole system is built around Bowers. If Bowers is on Florida, I don't know what he does. That's a hard statement, but I don't, I don't know what he does. That's sad, but it's true. I would like to. He's a great player. Don't get me wrong. I'd like the guy's to see a beast. That. The guy's a beast. I'm just saying. Can we anyway, swap him I'm out? I'm on ETN. Let's, let's swap out Xanders for Brock Bowers. Oh, I would love to swap out Xanders for Brock Bowers. But, you know, I mean, I'm one, like if ETN's on Georgia, that's what I'm kind of saying. Yeah. For sure. Know. He fits I right you're in. Under, I think you're undervaluing him. Uh, no, 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 no. <laughs> uh, maybe just valuing Bowers a little bit for what he can do in his versatility. Oh, I mean, obviously that guy's going to I mean, ETN, it. like, if you put him on Georgia. I think he's their best running back. By for sure. Way. But they're like. But that says a lot. They're like 5% better. That says a lot, though. I, this is Florida we're talking about. I agree. That's what I mean. Florida generally doesn't, recently, doesn't have Georgia-level no, talent no. on the field. And he well, was. Especially at running back. We'd never have anybody. No. And he was outperforming those dudes. That was big. That was something. You know what? I'm just going to receive that and say, yes, you're right. I'm seeking the only bright spot we had on offense all game long. Like every time he touched the ball, even when he was getting stopped, you really felt like he could do something. And for, by and large, he did. And on kick returns as well. That's the same thing. Okay. Uh, it was a brutal start to, for the offense. Brutal. I mean, no first downs. Not even really threatening. A first down, seemingly. No, yeah, not threatening. The first down was not scared. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I tried to go back and look, and it's like, why so ineffective? And, you know, I think Florida was never going to be effective in terms of efficiency or like, you know, all that explosive against Georgia. You're going to have to earn things. But, the inability to do the baseline stuff. So running the ball with the kind of like efficiency that we'd wanted to, or we'd have to. And then there was no 
creativity, right? Not that you have to like throw everything in at the game in the first two drives, but I don't think we did anything that Georgia wasn't like, yeah, they're going to do that. Now they're going to do that. And we'll just stop them here. At least, uh, at, at least from my vantage point. And you know, that uh, we can talk about that's maybe a little disappointing. Um, given the bye week scenario, maybe they had stuff they wanted to throw out there if the game was closer and later on, but and maybe you want to establish your baseline stuff. But um, it felt like we did stuff that Georgia was most likely going to stop. And we never really pivoted in the beginning there. For the most part, yes. I mean, on film, we did a little bit more coming out of the second half. For sure. But in those first five drives. Oh, no. I mean, this is, to me, here's my meta. And this is going to be great. This will be the quickest, I promise. The quickest offensive breakdown that you've ever heard me give on any podcast. When we go through it, we're going to go through it, but I'm going to on the film and everything. It's like, it's so simple to summarize, but first and foremost, this game really cements for me that Napier is going to go to his grave with his offensive formula. The problem is I've seen enough now to be able to make this statement. Okay. The offensive formula is, is like new Coke. It's not Coca-Cola classic. It's like, New Coke and nobody wants it. That that offense on film that he's running is not a is is a. I'm trying to think of a nice way to say this. If we're looking at game theory and leveling, is foolish. Now on film there are players that got open actually pretty frequently, but they're getting open on double moves. They're getting open on routes 25 yards down the field, and you know what we're not going to have time for running those plays against Georgia. We're not going to have time for that. So I can on film on one hand say, oh, look, there's plays where guys are open. That's true. But they're not nearly as open as Georgia players are against our defense. Not even close. We're not doing things to your point, Alan. We're not even trying to do things to really trip up Georgia. We're just running the formula. We're going to run the formula. We're going to run and die with this formula every single week. I'm going to roll out my 10 to 12 play action plays where they're exactly the same and every team has seen them every single time. There's no difference. There's no wrinkle. It's the same play. Everyone's seen it. And then Georgia's going to counter by blitzing a guy right into the rollout right lane. AR heroically avoids it every single week. What are we doing? What are we doing? So, yes, that's wildly disappointing. It's amazing we had the production we did. Because this offense right now, I don't know how else to say it, in the passing game, despite having yards, is not a good offense. It doesn't make sense. I don't like it. I'm tired of seeing the same stuff over and over again. It's not, it's not, I love the Dolphins. This is nothing like what's being run with advanced concepts of this style of offense. This is this is the the point one version of a Shanahan offense, or I think what's honestly, personally, having observed it better than Shanahan's offense is Mike McDonald's offense in Miami because it's way more vertically passing oriented. Mike McDonald's way less run oriented than Shanahan is, and Billy Napier is way more run oriented than either of them are. So anyway, I think Napier has a lot to learn in the offseason about his formula in the SEC because this junk's not going to work. I don't care who we have. It's not going to work. It has got to get so much better. And to your point, Alan, and to, to put this to bed, five drives in a row, we just ran the offense we always run as if we were going to be the giant on the field and you have to prove that you can stop us. That to me just seems dumb. Right. And I, I think knowing Georgia's proficiency in stopping the run really blunts what we want to do, right? I mean, to run the kind of play action passes, you have to threaten running the ball. And you could see early on that we were not going to be able to do that. And I think you could anticipate that. It's not like, hey, Correct. they're doing weird stuff here and stopping us running the ball. I 
Okay, that did it twice. Okay, let me let me pivot here. This was like if I do this, they will do this. This is like I can know this beforehand, most likely. Correct. And that's what's frustrating. Exactly right. And so come out and punch them first, right? Do something they're not expecting because they're expect they could probably are very confident you're going to do what you just did. Yeah. And what we did first was run a play action two man route down the field that they had a five on two against. Right. They left the check down completely ignored because we know that AR is not going to throw that. But even if we do throw it, the check down's five yards behind the line of scrimmage. And players are rallying to make that a two or three yard gain. So, okay, great. First delay, opening play, bye week. You've never seen this before. Oh, wait, <laughs> we've seen this on film like 50 times and we're ready for it. Right. And not that like, okay, it's the first play of the game. Do something tricky. Impress me. No, but just in general, it kind of shows right. you right away that like yeah. coaches are doing that. He's trying to hit a play action bomb. You're like, I'm, I'm coming down aggressive. It's like, Billy, they know what you're doing, dude. So does everyone else. Right. And I think that's, you know, I'm sure he would sit on the podcast and tell us the reason why he wanted to do it and why the offense will work. And he believes it. And maybe he's going to make a believer out of me. But right now on film, the junk's not working. In the second half, we switched to things that were much more basic, but a lot better too. Started running a few vertical concepts, started running some stuff that two on one some people, like just basic modern passing football instead of relying on the stuff that he wants to rely on, which is not working for AR. It's not working for this team. And our best game to date was against Tennessee who's proving, Allen to have a pretty good defense, actually, right. as time goes on. And right. we shredded them, largely because we didn't do this stuff nearly as much. But we're doing it all the daggone time. We're dying on the hill. He's dying on the hill for it. He's going to die on the hill for it. AR perhaps leaves this year, perhaps doesn't. He's going to die on the hill. We're going to keep seeing this. And so I think next year is going to be the prove-it-or-lose-it year for Napier when it comes to the OC title. Because the first year... I'm going to give him a pass. I'm saying right now I'm frustrated. I don't like it. I, I, I've never liked it from when we hired him. I didn't like that part. I was going to accept it because he's a winner and there's multiple ways to win, Alan. There's multiple ways to win on offense. That's going to be the way I love to win. But now he's going to enter. And I think he's building himself a castle where if you're a formula guy and you're going to die with your formula, year two is going to be the prove it or lose it OC title tag for him when it comes to play design especially. I think the play design is a big deal and the play calling, which we'll talk about, is also, I think, a big deal. This is a little meta for this part of the podcast, but let's say you, what's the best possible receiving core? Let's take you, Alabama's receiving core from like two years ago. If or LSU's when they have right, everyone. That's great. If you put those guys on this team right now in this offense in the plays that we're calling, is it, okay, now that unlocks it and it makes it really effective or it just makes it marginally better because of we're still not like maximizing what they might do? That's such a great question. And that that is the question. And to me, yeah, to me, it's a floor-level passing offense. That's what it is. It's not ceiling. Ceiling is you spread your players out. You give them chances to put pressure on defenses vertically and horizontally. Uh, we rarely do either. We either pressure them vertically but not horizontally we're pressing horizontally, but not vertically. And we round, we, again, we run route combinations that often aren't specifically attacking, uh, attacking a certain defense. We're sort of counting on pre-snap movements and orbits and jet sweeps and stuff that, look, I haven't done this yet, but I'm very tempted to do a film breakdown, and perhaps in the offseason I will, of Napier versus Shanahan versus McDonald at Miami, just so everyone can see. This is the same family of offense. Look how vastly different this is. And I don't want to hear that it's because we don't have good enough receivers. Fine. Make these receivers run the same route that these guys are running, and then we can evaluate it. And that's to your point, is if you're going to send two NFL receivers out right now, pick Tyreek Hill and your other favorite one, right? In this offense, 
would they get open more? Sure, because Tyreek Hill gets open all the time, right? But they're still going to be facing a five-on-two every single time. When McDonald is sending Tyreek Hill out, he's oftentimes one-on-one because the way he's orchestrated the matchup is that he gets himself one-on-one in like a zone route. That's almost never happening with Florida. Like, it's just not happening. And to be fair, Mike McDonald is getting to coach professionals and he's, you know, working with talent and time and he's a first-year coach there, but it's a different level of install pace. It's a different level, but we're just trying to give you those guys because sure. that's the family that Napier is in. I think he fancies himself in that coaching tree. And let's let's put the last point here. Napier is going against the grain. Right. He's a run first coordinator. There are very few of those guys left. And the patience for fans in a world where people are lighting up scoreboards is not really high if your run first offense doesn't work. And the real Achilles heel and why a guy like Mike Leach, who has not won anything ever and probably won't, but an innovator of the game, would tell you that running is overrated is if you can't run against a good team, your offense, as you said it, Alan, is basically dead because it's so heavily reliant on play action, which brings me to the point I wanted to get to with all of this buildup. Florida doesn't have something that I think is the most important thing for a modern passing offense to have. And that is what is called a quick game or a zero drop passing game or a one step passing game. We basically do not have one. And it is absurd. It's brutal and it's killing us. We're either play actioning, we're zone reading, we're run faking, we're running a ton of vertical routes that don't two on one people, but we do not have take the snap, zero drop, throw. We run those plays maybe two to four times a game and they're almost always like a dedicated screen. But the quick game is like the, watch the NFL on Sunday. Every single team, no matter how they run, it has a very solid quick game. Slants, digs, right? Hitches, intermediate routes, routes that can be run without your quarterback taking a drop from shotgun. Why do you do this? It allows the D-line not to get pressure on you. It keeps the defense from just flying up the field on you, knowing that you're not going to hit them with those quick plays. It opens up a bunch of other routes because you're attacking certain parts of the field. Florida just is not putting that on film It's at very all. weird. It's very weird. It's very regressive, and it makes no sense to me. And it's, it's again, it's anti-modern football. That joke's not going to work. And I think that's what we're really seeing affect Florida, especially against a team like Georgia, who we said, Alan, what was their kind of weakness on defense? They didn't generate a lot of pressure. Well, they were blowing up Florida's offensive line. And it's in large part because we have no quick game. They know these routes are going to take forever. And I think we've talked about it. We've chronicled it. But that to me, if I could explain one thing in general, if Billy can keep all the other elements he has, if he added a quick game, things would be so much better for Florida. And we just we just don't have it. Right. And there's obviously limitations that you watch teams that are just like throwing these five-yard passes all game long. And it's like... Kill me. Just stop. Yeah. Do something different. That's not what you want to be your meta, right. but you need that. Right. And when we do run it, it's often like slant to shorter in a bad situation and it's not effective. So um, it is weird. It is weird. Uh, and as you said, he's going against the grain. If he was doing something that made the most sense. And you know, what? the NFL, people are running the ball. Because everyone's dropping back and too high and just saying, all right, Patrick Mahomes, we don't want you to do this. Can you do? Can you just hand the ball off? Okay, teams are doing that more and more and being successful at it, making 
So you, you have to punish the demons with what they're giving you. But, okay, we, that was a good discussion. Let's and that's going, it. And yeah. that's the end talk on offense. Yeah. The goal of offense is to punish the defense with what they're giving you. But this offense makes it hard to punish the defense with what you're giving you because of how it's structured, how we're designing it. And it's really hard to do that. We're generally punishing ourselves and we're putting ourselves in bad situations against every team. It's not like this is the first game we've had a lot of third and longs. We've overcome a lot of third and longs in situations to make things okay. But it just, this offense feels like we're playing on hard mode. Mm-hmm. And it shouldn't feel that way. Even if we're misfitting players and things aren't right, just structurally, schematically, film wise, we're playing a lot of our passing game on hard mode. And that doesn't make sense to me. Okay, so there was a lot of discussion on the broadcast. This this is like common, you know, when AR is running, when he's not running, he takes a hit at the very beginning of the game, you know, which I feel like happens every game. He takes a hit at the beginning of the game. We're like, is he hurt? Question mark. How many times? Like four or five times we've had this discussion. Um, He does run more design runs in the second half. He They do utilize him in that way. Uh, obviously, that was a little more effective for Florida. Did that soften up Georgia or is it just that AR is really good at doing that type of stuff and it just made us more efficient here comes another big statement because I have no reason to make this statement because it's pure speculation Alan but AR got popped hard on the fourth down play that was not because of a, a whistle and then we got an automatic first down his demeanor entirely changed after that AR generally is a soft-spoken, to-himself kind of guy. That's generally not the guy that you want to be your quarterback, like persona-wise. You can succeed that way, but that's also going against the grain. I think maybe someone needs to, you know, punch AR in the face. Like, there's there's players that do this, right? Like, slap him in the face. Slap me in the face game. before the game, like, get me heated or something. Like, someone needs to rile this guy up some. Because on film, it's clear that he was just upset. He was running angry. Whereas I think oftentimes the first play where he gets hit, he does it to himself. He's going out of bounds, kind of slows himself down a little bit, kind of casually is going to go out and then gets hit rather than like, I'm going to make sure I initiate the contact with you. And I think that's part of just who he is. I think he's a conscientious thinking guy. Those are good things. And I'm speculating because I can't know this, but he doesn't play angry on film. He plays Zen controlled um, but you need a little more. And I thought that personally, there was a big shift in the game when that happened, especially with him. And I think his running went up one level. His desire to make sure he got all the extra yards went up one level. And I do think Florida's play calling got better. We we basically, we ran, you know, more 11 personnel. We ran more empty sets. We ran, we just did more things to confuse George's defense. We got out of a lot of the bunch stuff we ran, even if it was temporarily there. And I think that freed up AR some uh, in general. But clearly, without a doubt, the third quarter game plan was a much better game plan. We were not succeeding just running the same stuff. And I think that's the question fans need to know. We did different things in the third quarter that allowed us to be successful. And that begs the question, why are we banging our head against the wall, trying to make these concepts work when they're just not working? And what I'm saying now is not lost on any of you. Yeah. Most most people, fans, commentators, analysts of this team are have been saying the same thing and are saying this every week now. This is going to be the narrative that Billy has to answer to is like the game planning, the design, the prep. It doesn't this is just it doesn't seem to be tactile tactical at all. And it's not working. 
it's just not working. And to go five straight drives without a first down and to look listless and helpless out there, that's that's just shouldn't be. The talent talent yeah. difference is big, but it's not that big. Not it, at that level. And the game where the other team is scoring, it's not like you can, hey, they keep punting. Hey, let's just keep, we feel like we're going to break through here. Um, And yeah, in, in AR running, I I think that was a little bit of a late hit when he got hit. He was clearly going out of bounds. They, that guy could have gotten flagged. I And I don't mind him running out of bounds. I don't want him taking unnecessary punishment. But I think there is something to be said for letting him be the maximal version of himself. Well, I, don't, I don't know what we're saving for at this point. All right. Any other bright spots? I mean, we mentioned ETN. AR. I mean, Xavier Henderson had a great game. You know, he's kind of been having to run all the orbit sweeps and jet sweeps and right. sprint all over the field and run 10 miles a game. You know, over 100 yards receiving, was open a lot on the day, was winning his one-on-one matchups, could have had an even bigger day if we had time on the offensive line. Uh, again, the bright spots are we did have, we had guys running open. So we haven't always had that. Guys were open. I mean, Shorter had just killed a safety and a double move early in the game where we were going for a touchdown there. Would have had the touchdown, didn't protect. So it should be said, we've thrown a lot of, lot of big meta commentary on structure and style of Napier's offense because that's more important to follow right now than individual stuff. But the O-line in this game got owned. Almost every player out there right. had moments where they just got handled. And this O-line's looked amazing. But that, to me, was the most illustrative, Allen, of the talent difference. Like, if you really wanted to see it, Florida's O-line is nice. We've talked about it. We don't have we a lot of... them the best unit of the team. Yeah, they are. We don't have a lot of highly, like, on paper. These are not the top O-linemen of their class guys, for the most part. And that showed at times. I mean, they got, they got handled. They got driven back. They got beat on quick rushes. They got beat on... Not mental errors, just beat, just beat with talent, which is what you want to have happen, by the way. And on at least eight or nine passing plays, I could count where Florida maybe would have had a conversion. They didn't because of it. So that was a big narrative. Uh, Kingsley was getting thrown around out there like a rag doll. Yeah, he was ever matched in this game. And if your center is getting chucked around, that's bad. The center is is crucial to zone. Georgia lined up in a zero tech where they basically put their defensive tackle head head to head, face to face with your center which is a great technique if you think your D tackle is more athletic because in zone running, that center's got to get to the side of the field to push your D tackle the wrong way. And I would venture to say on like 70% of the plays, Georgia's D tackle was able to react to Kingsley, beat him to the spot and throw him out of the gap, which is like, you cannot run the football. Yeah, you can see him if that happens. Turned around on a lot of plays. Yeah, and he wasn't the only one. Like yeah, every, no, single, sure. every single one of these guys, Torrance got abused multiple times. I mean, every single one of these guys had moments where they really just had a hard time. Your guy, however, Alan, Barber, Barber, who we saw play left tackle because uh-huh. Garage went out for a while and right tackle probably was the best lineman on the day. I mean, he in general was really holding his own out there and I'm sure they're thrilled with that to be sure. able to switch against the Georgia team and do that. But lastly, as far as AR goes, he seems he seems to be regressing Allen, we've talked about this. Of course, he's inaccurate. His completion percentage shows you that, right? His consistency is all over the place, but now he's really reaching what I'm going to call like the the mortal sin of quarterbacking, which is not throwing the football on time. Right. You cannot do that as a quarterback. The entire offense is built on throwing the football on time, and by and large, he has stopped doing that on almost every throw, and that is very bad. 
Right. And that was something that we praised him for early on. Correct. And again, inaccuracy meaning the ball placement isn't perfect. But even if that was true for him, it was the right read out on time. He's lost most confidence, I think, in what he's seeing out there. And so it's not that he's not reading it. It's that he's not confident in his what he's seeing. Or he's just shutting down and saying, I can't even look at this other stuff. I, I can only deal with this. And when you're a quarterback who's not confident or you're under pressure, you're like, I don't even have time to go through my reads. I just have to do this one thing. That's not a good place to be. And yeah, you can see even on throws that we're completing, we're not maximizing the windows because people are slowing down. They're reaching back. That's tough. Uh, there's not a lot of way forward if the, if he's going to play that way. And he's not, he didn't implode. He didn't have a bad, when we say bad AR game, like, you know, Kentucky USF, but he certainly didn't look like the best version of himself. Not that you would ever would against Georgia. They're going to do things to you. They're going to pressure you. They're going to manhandle your offensive line at times, but he didn't play like he's potentially the best player on the field, which is what you were hoping for, for him at this point, like, you know, at the beginning of the season that he might become. Yeah, and I think just in general, he'll make the ceiling throw we've all talked about. The right. ball, the deep ball, the shorter is outrageous. Yeah. It's an incredible pass. That's an NFL top level pass on Sundays. But then he'll miss bunnies, just bunnies badly. And that's due to inconsistency, which in my opinion, having watched every snap on film, those were not there to the level they are now. His footwork's jacked up. Even when he's sliding in the pocket, he's rarely throwing on platform. He just he's an uncomfortable quarterback in the system. We've been following it. We've been seeing it. Uh, I know that he knows this could help his NFL game, but I think at this point in time, Alan, you know, and all of you on the podcast know this, I'm a huge believer in, in being a very tactical football coach. I believe in that wholeheartedly. I think that you have a system that you want to run. I think you have a style you want to play with, but I think that you always have to slightly modify your football team to what you have. And we knocked urban for that at certain times. And I think urban to his credit in college largely shifted away from his rigid system and began to build things that fit his team. I think Napier has to learn that. I know he knows that. I know he's been surrounded with guys who do that, right? Nick Saban and Dabo. I know he knows that. And again, I, I I hate speculating so much on where we are with this stuff, but the reality is it's hard to find another narrative right now other than this offense and what's happened this year with AR highs and lows and everything else has been so much less than what the film would have suggested it should have been. And I could just blame that entirely on AR. I don't think that's fair because every game he evades by himself, many more sacks that would have occurred if someone else is there. He makes big plays happen. This offense just again, feels suboptimal for the players we have, for a guy like AR, for an O-line like we have, it just doesn't feel like it's going to maximize these guys' skill sets. And maybe that's the most frustrating thing, is we're not going to win anything this year, but the pure strategist in me just dislikes being able to watch film and say, but what if we had done these things? What if we were instead trying to make this happen this year? That part's tough, I think, and frustrating, and I think people are feeling that. But that doesn't mean as we've said, that Napier's not going to use his formula to get to the destination we want to get to in year three. And none of what I've said today should be a deterrent. I'm not saying Napier can't get there, right? It could be 
two two ugly years and then year three is the breakthrough year. That formula could work in that regard. I just think there's some hurdles here that we're seeing now that look like they may be hurdles and not just temporary blips. Yeah, it's hard. And we're just having to read what's happening right now. We're speculating a little bit, obviously, um, because when something is happening that seems counterintuitive, there might be good reasons for it. We just don't have those available to us. Okay. Do you want to talk about defense? I do. Let's do it. All right. Um, I guess for this defense, a a decent number here, six for for 12 on third down for Georgia. Georgia's two or three on fourth down. These are not good numbers. 556 yards, 316 passing, 240 running at 6.2 yards per carry. Here's the better line. Two picks, one fumble, three punts. That's six stops overall. (laughs) It's pretty glorious for this unit, which is, again, faint praise. The numbers on Stetson, 19 of 38, 316 yards, two TDs, two picks. Bowers, five receptions, two TDs, one long one on that kind of funky tip. So unlucky. I mean, Bernie plays that perfectly. Oh, it's so unlucky. Yeah. And so this is the weird thing about the defense right here for them. I mean, they gave up 42 points, 28 in the first half. (laughs) And somehow it feels like they played better than we thought. They would because of the big plays. Is that? Yeah, I think that's exactly accurate. right. The big plays are what save the defense from another outing of brutality. But those big plays matter. You can't take them away. They count. And maybe just start calling him big play Bernie because maybe in some ways he's not the guy that you would want to try it out there at outside linebacker. But of the biggest plays of the season, he's a he's responsible for a lot of them, whether they're sacks, whether these turnovers. You know, obviously the we talked about the moment of the year is his pick against Utah. So I have to give him credit for a guy who, you know, again, is flawed as a player overall, but continues to show up big in big moments. I mean, that that can't be a coincidence at this point. No, well, he if you can put Bernie in situations where he's best at, he's great. We've said this. He's been he's a useful tool. It's really unfortunate for Bernie that he has to do things that he's that he's not as skilled at, that most teams he would not have to do those things. So this was a game where he was able to largely do all the things he wanted to do because Georgia was inexplicably passing the football so much. And look, he is an unbelievably fast linebacker. He's one of the fastest guys in the entire team as a linebacker. And you can see that when he's covering people, right? He Especially is, if he can match up with them. Again, his problem is like diagnosing, getting the play right. right. So if it's just like cover that guy, which is what he was doing on screen plays, on other stuff, it's like that is what he's phenomenal at. And so this was a glorious game for him, along with Trey Dean, just played super, super well. Um, now that pick he did get, of course, you know, that's the weird thing about football. The pick he got, he was burned, got toasted by the running back. The touchdown he gave up, you could not have played that better. That's like NFL linebacker cover skills. He turns, he turns his head, turns his hips to run with him, turns his head to locate the ball because he has such good coverage, probably could have picked the football off, goes to knock it down, and you saw what happened after that. But, I mean, you could not have played better defense on a future NFL tight end one-on-one down the sideline, and oddly enough, your interception comes on a play where you got beat pretty bad. So football can be cruel like that, but... No doubt about it, Alan. Bernie had a phenomenal football game. Again, one where I think he'd probably want to submit this film to the NFL and say, just watch this game and look at what I can do. Yeah, and when you can get him going, whether it's side to side or as a blitzer, I mean, there's a lot of things to like about him. Um, We've been critical of his play at times. Um, Okay, so 
before the game, you know, in last week's podcast, we talked about Florida should obviously, just from the statistics, play a lot of man. I don't know if they'll do that. Here we are after the game. So I'm, well, the question I wanted for us to look into, let's look at the numbers and see what happened. How much man did we play and did it help? That's a great question. Well, I wanted to play 90 plus percent <laughs> right. with pressure. And uh, Patrick Tony did not see fit to do that. We played seven snaps of man. Yeah. And Georgia threw the ball 38 times. So some quick math there. Uh, that's not 90%. <laughs> However, of those seven snaps, Alan, in man defense, Georgia was two of seven with one INT and one touchdown with a 28% completion rate and a QB rating of 48, 48. Now, when you couple that with the second thing I said, which was you should bring pressure with five people, Florida brought pressure 25% of the time I had requested to do what Missouri did, at least 50%, if not more. But 25% of the time, right? Or we had nine pressures out of that. They had a QB rating of 21. So, I'm going to put my frustration, tactical, strategic hat on both things at once and say, I'm frustrated. I'm frustrated with defensive coordinators anywhere. I know you and I are sitting in this comfortable seat in a podcast. I don't have to make that call, but come on. Like the data is there. Just look at Stetson on film. If I can sit here and see it from my comfortable chair, way far away from a college football coaching job. Why do we not lean more into this? And here's this crazy thing, Alan, is I think if we had, maybe this game is even closer. The numbers speak for themselves. Florida was at their best playing this style, and yet we refuse to do it often. And look, Georgia had 556 yards of offense, and they would have had 600 and something had they not dropped three cookie passes wide open in their lap. But those were not on man coverage plays. Florida looked the best playing man. So I don't know. It bothers me. I'm happy we at least did it. I'm happy we have the numbers. And not surprisingly, the numbers were a million times better than zone defense. And I think this scenario you are seeing is going to be Georgia's downfall this season. They're not going to win a national title with those numbers versus man defense. They're just not going to do it. Somebody is going to have the stones to line up against them and play them this way for an entire game. And then we're going to see what would happen. But so far, college coordinators are super in love with Georgia's defense last year with simulated pressures and don't rush a lot of guys and don't play man, tons of zone. That works great if you have a bunch of NFL players in your team. Sometimes line up and make your non-NFL player quarterback throw passes into tight windows. And let's not overthink it. And that, again, that's... You can get in a situation where you're in a rock and a hard place and you're like, this feels like 51%, this will be the best outcome. I'm going to try it. I'm going to stick with it because I think over time it'll work. When the numbers suggest you do something and then you have success doing something, I would have loved to see you just do it more. And if they start busting us with it, it's fine. They're busting us the other way. This is where I think the fan frustration comes out, our frustration comes out. Um, And again, I understand you want to get reps in your system and you want to build towards what you ultimately want to do. And we went through this a lot, right? The tactical versus the meta and you're building for the future versus winning now. 
just seems like a missed opportunity again to at least try that in a game that got close in the second half there. Yeah, not seems like I'm going to chalk that up as a missed opportunity. And the fun thing of doing this podcast is, again, we get to come on here each week and make suggestions about what we think they should do. And <laughs> right. it's really fun, right? I'm the, I don't have to do them. We don't see the results of what would happen if they did my strategy right. or your strategy or anyone else's. So I'll be the first to say, I don't want to sit here smugly and be like, I know what's happening and they don't. You should listen to me, Tony. But I, I do think it's fair to say, given the results of what we just saw too, yeah, we have a right to be frustrated as informed fans at any level. If you see an opportunity to exploit something, exploit it. And again, that's like, and perhaps I feel this way because in investing, that is the whole history of investing. Like markets move largely because if something is inefficient, someone exploits the absolute crap out of that until it's no longer inefficient (laughs) because it's something that needs to be fixed, quote unquote. And what you do is you attack that weakness relentlessly. And I just feel like with Tony, maybe he's more interested in being cute and creative when we do all these fun little things than just relentlessly pursuing what is the best tactic for the opponent that we are playing. So I think we missed an opportunity. And we talked about him being tactical, and he hasn't shown that yet. And again, I think if if Flores' defense was successful and we're haranguing him over, like I think you could get five more percentage points out of playing a lot more man. I think that's that's a way different conversation. That's like, hey, are we optimizing here? And you know what? There's probably a lot of different conversations to be had. It's like, okay, yeah, maybe this other way is, maybe I'm wrong. It's five percent better. And again, we don't know. Maybe what's showing up in practice, other things, other deficiencies, but it it begs the question. So then you're then you're again put on the stand here and say, okay, this seems like this would be a thing to try. And we just don't get the answer opportunity to ask, like, why why not? And if maybe there's a great answer, we're not getting it. This is the same situation here with Billy on the offensive side. Again, there's there's there are potential answers out there. They're just not obvious. Yeah, and that'd be great. That should be said too. I like that. We're we're talking a lot about big things in this pod. And so it's always important to say, I would love nothing more than to have some dialogue and and ask some questions because perhaps I'll hear some some arguments that are the other side and i'll say oh that makes sense actually i'll change my opinion we're in a one-way street over here where we speculate into a into a vacuum where nothing rebounds back to us and so we have to guess right and yeah it's again it's like well this defense is not a top five defense so maybe we could do these other things to make it a little bit better it's only it's top 20 there you don't have much a leg to stand on in that scenario you could you know bang on the table but whatever in this case it's like this defense is terrible feels like you should do this other thing and you're not I don't know why. We'll, we'll leave it there. Okay, anything else you want to note on the defense before we get changes? So we had all the big stuff, and obviously, no, just another shout-out to, to Trey Dean. I think we said in this podcast, our job here is to highlight the players that play well on film. And we've said this, right? I, I am not for or against any Florida player. I'm for all of them. I support the program. The better the players play, the more fun we have on the podcast, the more fun you have listening, the more fun we all have going to games, right? I want everyone to succeed. But if you're going to watch film, film tells you the truth. Whether you're good, bad, wrong, or right, that's what it exists for. That's how you get better. And so for a guy in trading who's so consistently on film has shown the wrong things, good for him to have a game where he played really well. I would love to hope that trading uses this as a chance to say, let me keep doing that. And I'm going to hope that's the case instead of, see, I told you all I'm amazing. 
accept all of my previous really bad film sessions. Because again, consistency is the key. So for Trey, great work. Keep it up. Next game, build on it. Let's see if you can put two in a row out there. And that's what you'd want to see if you're an NFL team, if you're a scout, if you're a coach. Let's get two in a row, then three in a row, then four in a row. Now you're becoming a great football player. But either way, all credit due to Trey. Trey and Bernie, fantastic stuff um, throughout this football game. Really, really good stuff. And then I think, you know, we didn't cover a lot of the individual stuff because you can just insert all the podcasts previous to this one for the issues that existed on all the other plays that Georgia had that we didn't talk about because they're all the same. So we're just trying to kind of give you some of the stuff that stood out that was new. Um, And then, you know, Chris McClellan continues to look like an absolute beast out there. That's great. He's fantastic. Yeah, I love him. Great looking player. I think at his development point where he's at as a freshman, man, sky's the limit. I think he's further along than Dexter was at his this point in his freshman year oh, for sure. Definitely. I mean, he's he is going to be – it looks like he's going to be the real deal. And very slimming wearing the single digits there. Looks great out there. All right. Um, special teams? Well, changes like changes. to see. So, okay. so another guy who's often mentioned here, Trevez, did not have right. his best game. Continued to really struggle. I know you're loving that Perkins pick. And meanwhile, Perkins, thank you. I waited for this. My boy – Gets a great pick, despite the fact that he definitely uses the wrong leverage on the play. He's inside. He should be outside leverage, forcing to the safety. But we keep saying this, and it continues to be true. I mean, Perkins is one of Florida's best cover guys. And Trevez continues to get burned every time they pass against him. And just seems to be And I don't know that he's offering anything against the run. And so I have to keep asking the question that needs to be asked. Why are we playing Trevez over Perkins? Even if Perkins is wrong sometimes... He gives you so much upside while covering. And I mean, Trevez, I think, was single-handedly responsible for at least three of those third down conversions. Yeah, it's hard with him because I think you can think uh, I can come up with theories about what this guy brings or potentially brings or what he's doing. Another, It's just hard to like find, like again, the why of what he's doing out there that's effective or beneficial to the team. So... Correct. Right. So changes like to see. What's the change I want to see? Pretty simple. I I just really want to see this team on both offense and defense move to a more tactical approach in the short term. You can still have your formula. Your formula is still there. But maybe right now for the rest of the season, just do the stuff that lets this team win as much as possible. Yes. And use the bowl practices and the off season and then spring and fall to then level up your stuff but come on let's just please on both sides try to win the individual football game as tactically as possible as if you were an nfl coach that would be a nice thing to see instead of what seems to be just like a bullheaded we're just going to keep doing our stuff and we're building for next year it's just frustrating i will say and this is a maybe just a little bit early in this conversation but these last games matter oh they matter a lot Fans want to see, players want to see, administration wants to see improvement and wins, right? Dropping these last four is not the same as winning these last four. Oh, no, definitely not. And these are all very winnable games. Many of them are very losable as well. So can you win? No one's expecting you to beat Georgia. They want you to be competitive with Georgia or show some progress, right? These These ones matter. Unfortunately, and this is year one, but because of the the losses that have already piled up a little bit, 
and some of the erratic performances, the I think you got to show a little bit more. Otherwise, you're creating undue pressure on yourself. And we said that before. Okay. All right. Special teams. Adam Mahalek, two of two, long of 52 yards. Good job by him. Yeah, that was a great, yeah. great day at the office by him to bounce back. The last time he was out there, of course, he missed some kicks. And so to come back in and have that's really nice. Great, great work by him. Love Crawshaw still. Got our Aussie six punts, long of 58, average 46.8. Yeah, and kind of a. Not a great day for him per se. Muffed a couple for his standards. Sure. But yet you look at those numbers and that that kind of shows you how good he is. Mm-hmm. Is live and in person, you're thinking, ah, he missed a few. Yeah. Yet his overall numbers are still still really good. And kickoff return with Etienne is better. Oh, it's way better. That again, that's solely yeah. because of him. That's yes. how good that guy is by himself out there. All right. Coaching decisions. This is one that was discussed in my parents' house is me and my dad were watching the game. Fourth down and six at the Florida 49, down 35-20 at Florida's, I think. 49. 49, yes. I tricked you by accidentally having an old piece of information in there. Gotcha. <laughs> there you go. Trick or treat. Um, basically, the beginning of the fourth quarter, 13-58 left. I very much want us to go for this. My dad was very against us going for this. Um, the announcers were ambivalent at best. They thought Florida was oh, questionable. I think down two scores right there with the way the defense is most likely going to respond at that point in the field. I really wanted us to be aggressive. Um, I think Georgia probably wanted us to punt. I want us to go for it. I didn't think it was highly likely that we're going to pick it up, but I think punting there just moves it even further away that you're going to win. You needed 15 more points. It's it's only two scores, but it's still two scores. I thought we needed to score right there to keep pace. Yeah, this one is the announcers being ambivalent is maybe the right place to be here. But I'm with you. I side on aggression here in large part because of what you know to be true. If your assistant hands you the clipboard here at this stage of the game, you would know that Georgia's averaging more than seven yards a carry and they just ran the ball seven of the eight plays on their yes. previous drive, which they're telling you, okay, this is cute, little brother. You got back in the game here. I'm going to take away your chance to win, which is Stetson throwing the ball, and I'm just going to run it. Can you stop me? And if I'm Napier, I cannot stop you. No, I have no chance of stopping you. You'd have to just fumble the ball on your own, which could happen. But I think you're trying to keep game pressure on the team. And if you can score there, you're going to put even more game pressure on the next drive. Whereas if you punt... If they even drive for five minutes and then punch you deep, that's like your best case scenario of a normal scenario. If they score on you, even a field goal, you're down 18, which is now a three-score game. And you're and not so, your own 25. You're at the 50-yard line. Yeah, to me, I think you're I think you're fine with that. You could stop them. They get nothing. But all in all, uh, I think you had to bet the farm to try to get back within one score as quickly as possible. And fourth and six is reasonable. It's not fourth and ten. You know, fourth and six is reasonable. So. The old school thing is like, yeah, you punt. Right. And I, I don't want to punt there. No. I like it. I think you could be ambivalent again, but I think the reality is, like you said, if, if Georgia was getting, let's say, two yards of carry, two and a half yards of carry, and Stetson's throwing two picks, 
and he's looking shaky, I'm punting. Yes, if they're not done what they had done but the that's previous drive. Correct. You have to really factor that in. And I think that's what I hope Billy was factoring in. But regardless, I would have gone for that. Well, he's trying to win the game. Correct. He's not trying to lose by less, which is no, what we asked for. I would have gone for that as well. One other interesting point in this game was the field goal. When Florida had 10 points, they kicked a field goal. Very disappointing because we had the ball right there in the red zone. But mathematically, it makes sense. The guy behind me was losing his mind about what an idiot Billy Napier was. Doesn't know math. And I actually didn't say anything. But I wanted to turn around and say, actually, that makes a whole lot of sense because now you're down 15, which is the rule of scores. Right. It may, I don't like it either. You want the touchdown, but the rule of scores matters. Uh, and it did matter as Florida was down 28-20, which is the goal of being within the rule of scores. But this guy was losing himself behind me uh, saying you play to win the game, not have a moral victory. And I, I, he was obviously was not talking when we went for it at 35-20. But anyway, I love these little nuances we look at each week because these are very close, but I, I agree with you. I would have gone for that. All right, so I have a question here for final thoughts. Should we be disappointed in this outcome, like this Georgia game, or is this the current expectation relative to where these two programs are? And I'm asking myself this question firstly. And I, the thing is, I don't know. Losing to Georgia is would be the current expectation. I don't think there's they're the number one team in the country that are defending national championship. Their champions are super talented. This Florida team is year one of a rebuild. On the schedule, you put that down as an immediate L and you don't even think about it. I still found myself a little disappointed that not like this week. I knew this week this was the most likely outcome. But if you'd asked me where I wanted us to be by this point in the season, I would hope to be a little more competitive outside of Georgia just making a ton of mistakes. So I'm a little bit living in that both both worlds there. This particular game, the result was the expectation. The first half was unbelievably disappointing. The third quarter was everything you hoped Napier's tenure would be. So I view it as like, those three, those three portions, first half, third quarter, fourth quarter. Fourth quarter was what you thought you were going to get at the end. Third quarter, amazing. First half, one of the most forgettable halves you could play. All those together have been Napier's 4-4 four and four record thus far, pretty much entirely. It kind of bottles it up. The majority of the game, or at least half of it, has been not enjoyable. And you get one quarter to one half a game that's great. And that's inconsistent, but that's also typically what happens in year one. But to your point, Alan, we lost 34-7 to last year against Georgia. We got utterly dominated. We were never close. We were close in this football game. This team came back. We were down one score, second down and long. This was a football game. It was a game. That means something. That's some level of improvement over last year to this year. If we didn't have the data points on the resume already from this year, almost losing to USF, losing badly to LSU. This type of loss to Georgia this year, probably no one really cares about. Ah, terrible first half, way to bounce back in the second half. But we're looking at a lot of data points here that I think people are mainly filtering in their overall expectations. This is the style or substance conversation. Which are down. And I think like we said, I'm disappointed in what's happened on the field with this football team this year. It's been disappointing. It did not meet my expectations thus far. Uh, I have been optimistic and excited about what's been going on off the field. And I think for sure, if we were in the pre NIL era, 
Again, like I said, that Napier's recruiting at the Urban Meyer level, that is the most important thing. What that means is I think that recruiting train's not going to just stop because we lost a five-star. It's going to keep on going. And that's the number one thing Florida has to fix. The graphic in this game was there's 25 five-stars, which we talked about, on Georgia. There's two on Florida, roughly, right? I mean, that is, an, that is a ridiculously large talent gap. So I think being disappointed... And expecting the disappointment, <laughs> those two things are like where we should be. But it has been uglier and more trying than I think a realistic viewer of the program would have hoped for. All right, because if you step back, the record is not so far off. No, it's certainly possible. We've said it from the beginning. Right, especially you know now with hindsight, Tennessee is a freaking juggernaut. Yep, super. LSU is better than we thought they'd be this year. Much, much better than we thought they'd be. So, really the only game you'd really, really, really want to have back is that Kentucky game. Which we said at the time was such a frustrating loss and still remains a really frustrating loss. And Florida picks up one more win, it's fine. But it's not just about the record. It's about, like, how we're approaching things and how bad the defense is and all those other kinds of things. Yeah, I mean, we thought the defense was going to be top 35, top 40. And so, that is how bad this has become. And it's fair to say that Billy's had, I think the hardest year one of any Florida coach with teams we've had to play. And this has been a really, really hard football schedule. Brutal. But again, you could have lost some games doing some things different tactically that would have, what I I think would have made us feel maybe better, but here we are. That's where we are right now. We're at four and four and that's what we're left with. All right. Coaching corner. All right, do it for us. we got Evan Thomas. Texas A&M scores a touchdown with 125 left in the game against Ole Miss, and they are down 28-31. They have all three of their timeouts remaining, 125 left. On the ensuing kickoff, they line up in the onside kick formation and then decide to kick it deep for a touchback. Evan wants to know, Alan, is there any plausible reason for not trying an onside kick there? I mean, with the three timeouts is what is what you're thinking about, but I don't know. What do you think? No, you have to answer first. I have my thoughts. I'm ready. What do you got? Uh, I'm plausible reason for not trying. I would think you would want to there. It's not a slam dunk to me, 100 percent, because you have those timeouts, um, and so I, I don't, I don't think it's egregious. It's not egregious at all. In fact, I would definitely not kick the onside kick here. Now, I know if you're listening to the announcers on TV, they're going to say, why not kick the onside kick? It gives you an extra chance to get the ball. But here's what I think. One, I definitely would not have kicked it deep for a touchback. I'm going to start with that. That really frustrates me. That's like good idea gone wrong. Because if you're in the onside kick formation, they're only going to have one player back and everyone else is up. It befuddles me that teams do not attempt to do any kind of like, and kickers do this easily, like 20, 25 yard kind of line drive, weird bouncing ball over the front line that then has to be handled. It's a live ball by your one deep man as you're sending your entire team after the ball. It's a great idea. More teams should do this. They don't. So I would do that for sure. The reason I would do it is I want to put them as deep as possible so that if I stop them, which I have to stop them, no matter what scenario that exists, I have to stop them once I get the onside kick. I get the ball with the shortest field I possibly have True. with a college clock that stops for first downs, only needing a field goal. That, to me, feels like a really good option. 
So I don't like kicking it deep because I think you waste another chance to get the ball back. I don't like kicking onside kicks because the odds you get them are just so small. And then let's say you do stop them three times in a row. You're like on your own 10-yard line. That is like a brutally difficult task. So I would prefer, I would take that extra chance instead. Uh, but I think there are plausible reasons, which answers your question. All right, lastly, Alan, I want to ask you this question. Back to Florida, last coaching corner question. How did you feel about all of the third down and long oh, runs? I had this in my notes and we didn't make it. I know, but I, I saved it for this moment. Because I know a lot of you were like, please talk about this. And here we are. Yes, we're talking sorry. about it. Sorry. You stuck this, with this us. Should have been... We're here and we're hitting it right now. <laughs> this should have been in the coaching decisions. Um, that's weird. Uh, as a meta strategy, I don't mind it. If you if you want to be really really aggressive and going for it on first down, and you're not confident in picking up those third and medium, third and longs, and you feel like the defense will give you five yards running the ball, but that wasn't really the case. Um, we were not effective picking up yardage in those third and longs most of the time. Um, it worked out a few of the times. So as as a general strategy, I don't dislike it. For us in those scenarios, I don't think it was effective enough to continue doing it. Yeah, so Florida is 34th in the country. 34th in the country at attempts at running the ball on third down and seven or longer. We have 20 of them this season. Liberty's number one with 33. Of those 20, Florida's converted a first down 30% of the time, which puts them about 10th on teams that have 20 or more tries. So they're not super effective. A lot of that has to do with what happened in this football game, which Florida had been very successful on third down and five or six or eight, getting to third down and one or two. I always look at the play. So each week I've gone on film review, Alan, and I've generally said, I I I may not have called it, but the play itself made sense, right? This was a, This was a viable play call, given what the team was giving you. In this game, there was only one time where Florida tried to run a counter against Georgia that had it gotten blocked correctly would have been a home run play on third and seven, probably a touchdown. They had everything they wanted. The other ones were unbelievably curious running into six or seven man boxes. It did not make sense. It's not what Billy's done before. It seemed to me like an absolute panic call where you just want to get to fourth down and you're like, let me just squeeze out two yards here. That is not good play calling. Again, what what are you doing play calling wise, Alan? You want to call the play that gives you the highest expected value based upon the defense that you're probably going to face in that situation. Your highest EV play. Old school, regressive, sort of blind stat football thinking is it's third and six. I'm going to press the hammer run button to get two yards. That is stupid, suboptimal, inefficient, regressive, not smart, not good. And I think he did it in this game. He had not been doing that before. He definitely did it in this game, and it backfired, and largely left Florida in. Yeah, and I don't out. mind if if you're if you're getting torched in third and long, passing the ball, and they're blowing you up, and they're saying, "Hey, yeah, you can run it for five yards." Tail, that's Dude, great. Get the fourth and one or two, and I think that's the thought. But the looks Georgia was giving Florida, right. agreed, and the run plays Florida gave them generally were not great. There was one or two of those where actually it was a good call, and you know you can't. It's a good play. If everything lines up how you want it and one guy doesn't execute, that's a good play. You can never blame a coach for that. That'd be like saying, hey, 
I called a passing play. I had a guy wide open. He dropped it on fourth down and three. I can't believe you went for that. You're an idiot. No, the guy was wide open. He, I mean, you have to execute. And so I think running plays are the same. They feel a lot worse when the guy gets tackled for one yard on third and seven. But the, when you look at it on film, it's the same thing. Same as the incomplete. If on this counter play, Ethan White, who had a really tough game in this game, Ethan White struggled big time. If he just gets the block, that might be a 25-yard touchdown on third down and seven. So that's a good play. But anyway, by and large, a lot of them are not great. So that was frustrating. All right, patrons, Alan, let's, let's, uh, let's hit them. Todd Smith, Chris Suarez, Gus O'Leary, Deuce Poppy. What a great, great one. one. And that's great, yeah. Bill Smoke, Justin Holder, Sang Huang, Laura Beals, Matthew Galloway, Adam White, Adam, Chris Zayner, Charles Greer, Ken Phelps, Tony Gamachia, Don Bergeron, Barry Green, Matthew Reddish, John Walters, Carson Tulo, Aaron Jeter, Jonathan Levy, Paul Wexler, Phil Bowerman. What's up, dude? Caleb Whitfield, Hiller Spiewak. Jared, Brian Uzdike, double O, let's go. Uh, Michael Hammer, Adam and Jenny, Brett, Jason Johnson, Brad Bell, Dan Dorman, Alexander Shavers, The Chef Gator, Steven Diaz, Jake Buckles, could be Achi, Achi or Aki Jones, perhaps. Uh, Bill Waite, DJ Scratch and Sniff. <laughs> I really hope it's a real DJ name, by the way. Smitty, Trevor, Alan Holm, Dr. Jared Moyles, Bill Lewis. Looks like Lieutenant Carbonell. LT Carbonell? Like, or could be LT as well. But I'm going to go with Lieutenant because it's capitalized, but it could all be LT. So let us know. Uh, Jean Labrasserer, or that's not right. Jean how, about, how about Jean Labossier? Yes, there you go. You read these names, you think English, and you think, no, that's French. Quickly, yeah. Je suis désolé, mon français, ne pas bon. All right, Cody Alsup, <laughs> and then Brad. All right, games we picked recap, Alan. Mm. Let's go. Let's Can we go. skip this section? You went five and seven, and your boy went seven and five. I am now in the lead, 58 and 57 on the year. And you are 56 and 59. And Nothing for either of us to brag about here. So, yeah, I mean, we can't say from the top. We were together on all the games except for two, and you won both those. So, congrats Ooh, to you. Big time. All right, we had uh, number 14, Utah, favored over Washington State. And Washington State goes down 21-17. You and I both had Utah, but they did not cover. Yeah, this was a hard one. Um, felt like Utah was going to win. How close was this going to be in it was too close. Yeah. Pac-12 is playing fun football this yeah. year. Yeah. This I mean, is they, the most fun it's been in a long time. They have time, three teams that are technically alive for the playoff. Yeah. Which I don't think you could have said that No, at this point in the year in the recent past. No. It's fun. It's much more fun than normal out there. Uh, number two, Ohio State favored by 15 at Penn State. And of course, 44-31 is the <laughs> final. Penn State was way in this game. Yeah. Way more than I think I and a lot of other people thought. Uh, but Penn State gets the gets the. I mean, they're winning, and all of a sudden they kind of just become a pumpkin, and Ohio State just blows past them, makes some big plays on defense. Uh, yeah, if you're Penn State, you're you're feeling like you could have stolen one here, and you did not. It was close there. I think Penn State was maybe winning by a point. The next time someone checked in with me about what the score was, it was like, oh, it's like forty-four to something. They're like, what? Yeah. It's went yeah. fast. I think this game does raise questions for Ohio State's profile, though. A lot of people like had them entering the weekend as the clear number one team. I was like, whoa, 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 not so fast. They've played nobody. And now against their first true competition, didn't look so great, per se. 
Not horrible. Good win, but, you know, we'll see. Number seven, TCU, the darlings of college football this year, coached by Sonny Dykes. Go on the road to West Virginia as seven and a half point favorites, and you and I both trust them, and they come out on top by 10. This is a good win for them, for sure. Uh, this was the game that, unfortunately for them, is the easiest of the ones they had remaining, but it, it felt like just a classic chance to slip up, and they didn't. They did not. They just keep on winning. Oklahoma at Iowa State, they have a nice win over your clones, mm. 27-13, a convincing yeah. win for them. Yeah, they're they're very Jekyll and Hyde right now. Um, yeah, if, it eases the pressure on them for sure, the fact that they won this game. Yeah, it's a good win. Uh, Notre Dame at Syracuse. Jeez. And I said this. I said Syracuse is going to have a letdown, despite the fact that you can't just walk into the Carrier Dome. <laughs> I felt like Notre Dame could. And uh, the Cuse goes down 41-24, and Marcus Freeman's Notre Dame team, which has been up and down this year too, gets a nice win. Yeah, I mean, this was way up for them, com- you know, considering what they had done this year. Uh, I mean, they lost to Marshall. Not Marshall. Was it Marshall? Oh, yeah, it was Marshall. That's correct. At home. Yeah, not that I thought Syracuse was going to be like just smoke them, but this was a a good win for them. I mean, if you're Marcus Freeman, you're, you needed this type of result. You need to close with some wins. So good job by him and good for Notre Dame. The shocker of wow. the entire weekend. I have no explanation for this whatsoever. I don't care how injured, which we said they were. We said that Oklahoma State was very injured. So was Kansas State, by the way. 48 to nothing. Mike Gundy, the guy I always say you can trust to put consistent performances together. I mean, what happened here, Alan? Yeah, this was weird. I mean, not that Oklahoma State lost to Kansas State. I felt like, I mean, they were favored by one. One point. It's a coin flip at 48 nothing. Right. That's super bizarre. I didn't watch any of it. It was over almost immediately. It was kind of crazy. Super crazy. All right. Number 19, Kentucky. At Tennessee, 12 and a half. You and I both jumped all over this. Yes. Uh, we've clearly, I don't want to think it's because I don't like Kentucky, although I don't like them at all. It's just, that's what they've looked like on film. We said it after they beat Florida. This is not a good football team. And Tennessee, who is a good football team, exposed them and just murdered them. Yeah, they're 44 to 6. I mean, this was, this was the most obvious result for me. I mean, I thought Kentucky might have scored a little bit more. Um, Not that it had to be this wide a spread, but 12 and a half felt. Easy. Felt like a layup, especially given how, again, we know Kentucky likes to play defense on their back end. All right, number 10, Wake Forest at Louisville, <laughs> favored by five and a half. And what happened here, Alan? Louisville well, just beats them like a drum. Like eight, I think eight, was it eight turnovers eight for turnovers, Wake Forest six, in the second half alone? Six in one quarter. Six in, just let that settle in. Six in one quarter. That's almost impossible to it do. It feels impossible. So... Yeah, weird result, but if once you look just beneath the surface there, it's like, okay, well, that's why. Unreal, though. Un- out of nowhere. I mean, this is why, again, college football, it's unpredictable. I don't care what you think you know, you don't know. All right, Cincy goes on the road at UCF, and UCF gets a signature win over, again, a very game Cincy team who has a huge turnover this year. I think they've been a lot better than people thought they would be, Right. and UCF sneaks it out there at the I end. I don't think Cincinnati was the 20-best team in the country, um, but they had like you said, they've been playing, punching above their weight considering their turnaround. And I don't like to see UCF win these games, but they did it. And you were right about it. Yeah. Well, Missouri, who we both are right about here, on the road against South Carolina with South Carolina favored by five and a half. Mm. Mizzou wins 23-10. And, and it's safe to say now that Missouri is a top 
three or four defense in the SEC, probably higher if they had any kind of offense. That defense is for real. And that's a team who somehow, Allen, seemingly every year for the past 12 years, has a great defense with a bunch of players that are not highly recruited. Of course, they do have Yeah, Hopper. I mean, the, the defense isn't great every year, but they, they're playing well right now. But they right find now. ways to do it. And they're playing really well on defense. And again, I'm going to keep extolling Hopper because when you have an absolute all-SEC linebacker out there, you can do a lot of stuff. But, I mean, that's a good win for them. Then they've had a really nice second half of their season after, I think, a poor start. And it's good to talk about Missouri because I think most of the headlines are going to talk about all the bad vibes getting sucked, all the good vibes getting sucked out of South Carolina this week after they were riding high last week but it makes sense i mean a&m's not a good team missouri we've seen them on film very competent defense stymied georgie georgia georgie georgie, georgie. georgie. i kind of like that but uh, you know spencer rattler south Carolina, their offense is uh is often nowhere to be found and so if you make them their own worst enemy they will largely oblige but either way the sec as we said a lot of battling in the midfield all right number 15 old miss takes care of a&m 31 28 they were favored by two and a half. <laughs> they covered. Uh, as Lane Kiffin will, some great post-game comments. He's sort of the modern-day Steve Spurrier. I love it. Uh, two good ones you may have seen, Alan. Uh, one about, obviously, what he may have dressed up as for Halloween. And maybe Jimbo wants him to dress up as the Joker. Right, well, because he called <laughs> Lane Kiffin, he said, a clown act. A clown, yes. And... I guess Lane will wear it now. Yeah, and so the Joker, which is pretty great. And then I also followed up with uh, 395 rushing yards against uh, A&M's defense, which is a bunch of five stars. Not not too bad, is what Lane Giffen said. So For sure. He's great. He'll say anything. And this is a good win for Ole Miss. I mean, they're, they're still at the level where this is like an excellent result for them, even considering this A&M team is really disappointing. No, excellent win for sure. Uh, Florida would take that same exact result oh, yeah. this weekend. All right, Pitt goes on the road to UNC, where quietly, quietly, the little brother of basketball player Luke May, Drake May, has numbers that are basically better than anyone else's in the country. He's been spectacular. No one's talking about this guy. We had said after week one or two when I watched him play, I was like, this dude is outrageous. Uh, they, they were went, like seven and one or something like yes, that. Yes, they went forty two twenty four. But I mean, if you have not watched Drake May play football, go look at his numbers. They are outrageous. This dude is shredding people in his first year as a starter. It's insane. Yeah, they're great on offense and have been equally as bad on defense. And they keep winning. So you know, hey, good for them. <laughs> I mean, they're I guess technically alive for the playoff as well. Yeah, why not? Let it roll. All right, Daytona Steve. <laughs> uh, I mean, the, Shot the, every the game here. in a Sunday NFL parlay did not come through. Sorry. Shot for the moon, but let's just be real. His first pick was the Jags. Yeah. And we said, there's no way that you're making your first pick the Jags. And promptly, before the one o'clock games had kicked off, Daytona <laughs> Steve's parlay was already out. Yeah. But it was a dollar. So no big deal. It was only a dollar. You're back this week. Stay tuned for his latest crazy parlay. All right. SEC Roundup. Um, Arkansas really puts it on Auburn, 41-27. It wasn't even really that close. And the news today, let's go right to that. Brian Harson fired, uh, which was the most unsurprising news ever. Uh, but this number is this is get ready for this. crazy. Auburn has paid roughly $37 million football head coach buyouts in the past 687 days. That's around $55,000 per day. What the buyouts? Who is the, who were they bidding against when they hired Brian Harson? They they could give him zero buyout. 
we've talked about this for years, right? We've had we've had Bill Carr, Florida's former AD on the show five years ago. We talked about this. We've talked about this with Scott Strickland on this very show. We've asked anybody who will talk about it. Why are you as ADs giving these buyouts to head coaches? And they'll say the agents demand it, blah, blah, blah. I'm still calling BS on that. I'm just saying no. I'm waiting for the first coach to say, no, this is Auburn. I'm not going to give you that buyout. If you don't want to coach here, take a freaking hike. There are only so many SEC jobs. And to be doing this to yourself where the most likely result is firing your coach is insane. This is so stupid. Yes. So stupid. And so it'll be interesting to see who they hire here. I mean, they're they're probably going to rebound here and hire somebody interesting. Well, you got Matt Rule out there. Matt Rule. And I put this on our thread, and I'm going to put it now out to the podcast. The person I'm most afraid of coaching Florida State, hands down right now, is Deion Sanders. I do not want Deion Sanders to go to Florida State. I know some people think there's some bad blood there. I don't care. I don't want that guy anywhere near a program we play against. He is destroying the swag. Dion wins at things he does. He's got tons of influence and swagger over the modern college athlete. It would be a huge step up for Auburn to hire him. But if I'm Auburn's AD, I'm interviewing him. For sure. I have to see what he has to say. He entered into Jackson State, a program that does not win the swag, and he is dismantling everyone. You've got to take notice of that. And again, his personality is larger than life. This guy's an unbelievable following. And I think he has to have a plan for recruiting, right? Whoever takes this job has to have a plan to Correct. recruit. And he's recruiting at Jackson State at sure. a historically good level. And there's no reason to think he couldn't do it here. But that, if you want to splash hire, that like if it didn't work out, people probably won't hold against you, that's one of them. Just don't give him the buyout. Yeah, which could be a problem. He feels like he'd be a big buyout guy. Even though he's got tons of money, I would not. I would not pay anybody the buyout. I wouldn't do it either way. It'll be really interesting because Auburn is desperate to obviously get this one right. Okay, uh, we talked about this earlier. We just teased it up a little bit. Uh, the big news today: Brent Cox dismissed from the team. Um, I don't know if more news has come out since we pressed the record button, but uh, no, like smoking gun about here's why this happened. Billy did say it was cumulative meaning hey you kind of built up to this you'd had a lot of chances you didn't fulfill what we asked you to do this is a big step i mean we talked about him as the other like mvp of the season other than mitchell miller even though he played defense because he'd been a one-man wrecking crew and now he's gone so he was gone either way at the end of the year obviously because he's graduating but this is this is a this is a shocker in one level. Uh, another level, you could probably imagine it, um, given his rep. But uh, yeah, big news. Just your immediate reaction. Wow. I mean, yeah. Obviously, when it broke, we thought it was a joke in our text thread. When JT broke the news, and we're like, okay, get out of here. JT on our text thread calls himself JT Money. By the way, he's got an alter ego that all of you should know about. That he uh acts like a message board insider, but he's not. But occasionally he drops truth on us. We can't tell what's real or false. We're like, ah, that's funny. And then 30 minutes later, the news breaks. So uh, JT Money, congrats on breaking us that news. But this is shocking. This is the best player on defense that Florida has. Hands down on film, right? 
So now that that's true, we've just kicked the best player on our defense off of the team for cumulative reasons, which means cultural reasons. He's clearly been probably breaking some rules, doing some things. There's been a tolerance level for it. I want to ask you first, Alan, with that factual information out there, best player on our defense, still games left. You want to make a bowl game. Tell me what you make of dismissing Cox from the team for something that is not necessarily, you know, it's not a legal thing. It's not a grades thing. It's an insubordination thing, disobedient thing, maybe attitude thing. Those are all big things, but tell me what your thoughts are. Well, without knowing the reason, it's hard to go, yes, this was deserved. If I step back and talk about it from a perspective of would I want my coach to have the conviction to kick his best player off the team if it was warranted? Yes. So in that sense, I I think it can be a good sign that you're not going to just allow someone to run roughshod over your culture. Um, but again, I would want to know what the reason was before I would really land on this. Like, oh yeah, this is much deserved or Bill, you're crazy. You're overreacting in an extreme kind of way. So it's hard to talk about in a vacuum, but theoretically I would want my coach to be able to make this type of move if it was deserved. I think that this move is either a savant level culture building. You can't tolerate players that don't fit into your system type move, which I want to hope it is, you know, if you're building a culture, it's really important that the the ethos of your organization exists above everyone. That's one of the first things you would say. Here are some of the rules of how we're going to behave and conduct ourselves. If these rules are broken, then these are the consequences. If these rules are broken enough, then these are the consequences. Napier is such a systems guy. You have to believe this decision is not the result of some knee-jerk reaction to an individual event, but as a consistent breaking of the rules, you would hope that Cox would have known that his actions he was about to take or had taken would lead to this. And if all of those things are true, that's a very good dismissal. If instead, let's say the player has no real idea what's going on, they've maybe been a foul, they've been in trouble a little bit here and there, but they don't really know that their actions would lead to dismissal, that's going to be like a sneak attack surprise, not as good of a dismissal, right? Because what you want to do is get in front of your team and say, I don't care if you're Anthony Richardson or if you're Trevor Etienne or if you're Brenton Cox, these are the rules for our family. And if you break them, these are the consequences and nobody gets special treatment because the team is above everyone else. And the only way you will win as a football team is to put the team above everyone else that's clearly the message Billy is hoping to send right now is, hey, if you want to be out, let's be out. Go ahead and leave. Transfer, remove yourself. Now is the time to drop because my tolerance is now over. It's over and it's done and we're moving on. And so I think this is the right timing in the season that these things tend to happen. And now you're going to want to build with the guys that you have. But clearly on, on the field, Florida loses their most talented defender, their most productive player, their best pass rusher, their most disruptive player is now gone for these final four games. And that hopefully is going to be the old addition by subtraction move in totality. We're going to find out, but that's massive news. It's not every day in the middle of the season that a football team dismisses their best 
player on one side of the ball without so much as a reason. Wild stuff. Yeah. Big news. And it will certainly affect Flores potential in these games down the stretch. Um, maybe they win or lose with or without him. It's possible. No, but certainly an impactful player to lose ahead of these last four. And I would agree with everything you just said. Well, thank you. All right. We're ready to talk about Texas A&M. I'm ready. The, uh, what did you call them? The weirdos, the Texas A&M weirdo Aggies. I, you know, I just said they were, Hey, if you've seen any of the yell videos, that's pretty weird stuff. Yeah. You it's know, uncomfortable. I'm okay with them being weird. Yeah. Some people call them a cult. I might've said that on the podcast before. Cult feels nice. Yeah. Cult like, like, you know, for example, a lot of you probably know this, but you know, the Aggies at A&M, like if you're in the core, the cadet core, that's not actually military. That's not attached to any military thing. It's just a voluntary thing you do. It's like a fake military. Very interesting stuff. Man, but they love their Aggies. Oh, they love it. They love their Aggies. That's for sure. All right. This is a noon kick out in College Station. Florida's four and four. A&M, who's favored by three. A very disappointing for them, three and five. They were expecting to be the second best team in the West this year. And maybe even challenging for a division title if things broke the right way. It has not. And Jimbo Fisher, it's been a lot of ink spilled about his, what, still $89 million in buyout if they were to fire him today. <laughs> I mean, there's, they're, they're with him now. They're married yeah. to him. Oh, they're, they're married. Divorced. There's there's no divorce coming. Last time Florida played AM fairly recently in 2020, that game that Florida lost 41 38. Very winnable game. Late fumble by Malik Davis. Late field goal to win it. Um, Yeah, fun game. Loss for Florida. Not that it matters too much to these current regimes or what Billy Napier is trying to do. The aforementioned Jimbo Fisher is the head coach. This is his fifth season. He's 37 and 18 overall. Uh, Beard wants us to know that someone was 39 and 16. They've lost four straight. In year five, this is not what you want. This is not what you want in your build. Um, They are very talented. Um, Their talent composition is fourth. They have 10 five-stars. A lot of those guys are really young. Freshmen, sophomores, they have 46 four-stars. If they continue to recruit at this rate, they're going to be in the top two most talented teams. They're already right there. Alabama and Georgia just been doing it for longer. Coaching staff, OC Daryl Dickey, although Jimbo is the primary architect, he's the guy who has the most influence. The DC, DJ Durkin, a name Florida fans will remember. He was a DC here in 2013. He's been the head coach at Maryland. He was at Ole Miss last year. He's in his first year there. Um, Yeah, interesting moment for them. Again, there's no pressure except for there's a lot of noise. Uh, let's talk about their offensive personnel. Or anything you want to say about Jimbo real quick? Oh, man. Jimbo's a guy that when we first profiled him early on in the pod, of course, we talked about his offense at Florida State. Talked about how how creative it was. It's complicated for sure. But when it's working, it's really working. And really all that's happened since he's been there with 
with the anomaly year of Kellen Mond, who really wasn't, you know, a great quarterback, but they made it work. All that's happened offensively is just major, major struggles, which is really surprising for a guy who was known as being a really solid offensive mind. And now that you have so much data on him, there's the really troubling stuff of his record with Jameis Winston and without it, which is really interesting. You know, of course, he passes the three-year test, Jimbo does, because he passed it at Florida State. Uh, but you know, more data, listen to the data, always follow the data, right? The three-year test is not like you're good for the rest of your life kind of deal. Um, but the data is, is really worth looking at. Like who is Jimbo Fisher without Jameis Winston? And that could be too reductive or it could mean something, but the heat is cranking up on him at A&M this year. He can probably have a major whiff, which he's going to have, but next year, if it happens again, things will be. I mean, it almost doesn't matter. It's just it doesn't. Get but so people, unpleasant. yes, that's what I mean. Right now, I think they're still going to try to find some positive scenario. But it's been really surprising, I think, to watch the struggles of Jimbo Fisher's offense at A and M. Now, last week they had an explosion on offense with their freshman quarterback. I'm sure all Aggies fans are hoping. This is the beginning of a new future with a guy who's going to be there. That remains to be seen. But I think for me, that's those are my thoughts on Jimbo. Right. Surprising level of, of offensive underperformance. And the narrative around him is similar to the conversation that's begun about Billy Napier is should he hire an OC? And I, I would say for Jimbo, I would, and the data seems to be like, yes. Yeah, I mean, for sure at this but, point, even though you run an offense that I think schematically makes sense, you're not. it's too it's many so, years of it's not It's so output. complicated. So you're asking these guys to make all these route adjustments and all these things that are, they're just not capable of and you're not willing to adjust and you just keep losing and you it's fine. You just pile up the losses because you're and, owed $90 million. And that goes back to the system, again, versus tactical, versus doing what your team can handle. Those That's what the best coaches do. Okay, that five-star freshman, Connor Wigman, started last game. Went 28-44, 338 yards, four TDs. That's a pretty good stat line. That's a good stat line. He <laughs> looked good doing it for the most part. So um, those aren't phony stats. They do come against an LSU defense that, excuse me, an Ole Miss defense that is not statistically very good. Um, but the one he's about to play is not statistically very good either. Um, their star running back who they use a ton, um, A-Chain, 765 yards, four TDs rushing. He's also got two TDs receiving. He's their dude. They rely on him a ton. They have a very talented freshman wide receiver is already their go-to guy, Evan Stewart. He's got just under 500 yards, two TDs. And then the other guy they throw to quite a bit, Moose Muhammad. Um, He's got 350 yards, essentially three TDs. You'll see him on, on the field being very effective for them when they can get him the ball. Um. It, it, this is almost like a tale of two store offenses here in terms of pre this week and you know after this week. Uh, this is an interesting data point, but they've been really bad all season long. They had not scored more than twenty four points against an FBS opponent. They did that this week barely. Um, they've been really really rough. Uh, it's very interesting this past one with an with finally putting in the freshman quarterback and they start to play well. All right. Scattering report wise, let's take a look at how AM matches up in the running game versus Florida. 
A&M is 4.5 yards per rush, which is good for 46 in the country versus Florida's very robust and sound running defense, as you all know, allowing 5.1 per year uh, per carry, which is good for 120th. 120th is Florida's rushing defense, Allen. The good news is, though, despite A&M's actually rather healthy yards per rush stat, they don't rush for a lot of yards per game in totality. They are 88th in the country, and that is largely due to the fact that they've been unable to sustain drives. So they do have a good, again, yards per rush, not a great total. Uh, there's a push when it comes to Florida's defense versus A&M's offense in the passing game. And that's because both of these are very woeful. AM's passing attack, 6.3 yards per pass, good for 108th in the country versus Florida's 8.3, 114th in the Those country. Those are some ugly, ugly numbers. Really bad numbers. Now, I think AM, of course, is really hoping that their freshman is not at those numbers. He was not at those numbers last week. He was much, much better. We're going to find out. AM is 39th in throwing picks, so they throw a decent amount of picks. Uh, and 74th in sacks allowed. Sorry, 39th in picks. They don't throw a lot of picks, but they do allow a lot of sacks. So 39th there, 74th in sacks allowed. They're 87th in points per play, and UF's defense, not surprisingly, is 102nd in points per play allowed. So what do we have here? We have a bad offense versus a bad defense with a freshman quarterback who A&M is hoping is able to askew these stats. Florida's defense doesn't really have such a narrative to rely on. Now Cox is out, one of their best players. And do you give a little edge to AM there? Maybe. You certainly give more hope to them there, I think, in that regard. But this this matchup, I think, on paper looks like a push with a lot of question marks. I know Florida is a defense that you get you get right against, right? So you've been bad. Well, here's the antidote. Can't pass the ball? Hey, welcome. We got just what you need. Uh I would not be surprised if AM had success. Right, so as bad as they've been on offense, I think Florida offers just what you'd want, and my expectation is that they're going to look good. Yeah, I mean, I think Florida that's I, I think that's very true. So, what could Florida do to make this better? Well, I think they should play man cover two, and then if they're going to play zone, play cover six. A and M is pretty consistent, depending on what coverages you play. They've been really weak against man cover two. There's enough snaps for me to indicate that's something that they were struggling with. The problem is, Alan, all these numbers are based on the season. To just view, you know, AM's performance one game against Old Miss with a freshman quarterback is not really the right way to go. And thanks to all of the Halloween shenanigans and everything else that's gone on, I did not get ample time to watch enough film on their freshman quarterback, Connor Wigman, to be able to make my own assessment on how I might defend him. So that's important. So I'm not going to give you my usual, I feel really confident this is what we're going to do. But the team stats for AM as far as this season, you either want to bring pressure or you don't want to bring it at all. So bring a lot of pressure. Like don't bring five, bring six or bring seven. They've struggled with that. Or just bring three. They've done really, really well versus four and five man fronts when it comes to rushing. And AM, of course, lit it up against Old Miss and Old Miss kind of runs a lot of similar stuff to what Florida does, not with all of the creepers and simulated pressures, but a lot more zone, not as much man. Um, And they torched them. So if it were me, based upon just the stats of of what is typically occurring with a Jimbo offense, that they like to create a lot of confusion using their tight ends, their H-backs, their running backs, that's where man helps you clear up those confusions. 
And cover six is also helpful because you're going to get a combo coverage. You get cover two on one side, cover four on the other side. It's a little bit more disguised. It can help It can help you play in the run game on one side. So you can kind of slant that to your advantage so you get more eyes in the backfield. So it makes sense why those two would work. But I think for Florida, you want to come up with a game plan where you have to expect to have a couple of things you've seen on film that you want to attack tactically with this freshman. Is there anything you've seen where you think he may struggle with? What kind of throws does he like to make, not make? And I apologize for not being able to give you the typical detailed breakdown. It's a very small sample size anyway. Yeah, but I still love watching quarterbacks on film and taking guesses of what I would do to stop them. This week, you can't get that. My apologies. I will break down what happens after the game and then be able to tell you what I think would have been wise. But time got the best of me. But either way, interesting matchup, I think, in this game um, for Florida's defense versus a new quarterback who, again, I think has given new hope despite the loss A&M had. I think they're feeling a lot more hopeful on the offensive side of the ball than probably Florida fans are on Florida's defensive side of the ball. All right, let's talk about the defensive personnel. I'm going to list two people here. Uh, linebacker Chris Russell Jr., 52 total tackles. Defensive back Jordan Gilbert, 31 solo tackles, two picks. That's none of the high-profile freshman defensive linemen, sophomore defensive linemen. They have guys all over the field who are very highly rated. Um They've not been a dominant group, but they've they've definitely been the better unit by far. The defense is the thing that's kept them in games. Um, they've been solid in some aspects, disappointed in others, but this is not a bad unit. Um, it's a young, inexperienced, but very talented unit. Yeah, and DJ Durkin, who of course a lot of uh, you know fired from Maryland for. Interesting circumstances, to say the least. Now kind of trying to work his way back. A well-thought-of guy in defensive circles. Has this unit playing well? What's interesting when you look at the numbers, though, Alan, is there are some favorable things for Florida. Florida actually has a very strong edge in the run game. Florida's 10th in yards per rush, and A&M is 114th in yards per rush allowed. So if if you need to find a nice narrative for Florida, there's one right there on offense. We know that Florida's a rushing attack-oriented offense. AM struggles greatly there. In the passing game, there's a strong edge to AM. Uh, Florida's 81st in yards per pass. AM is 16th in yards per pass allowed. So strong edge to Florida running, strong edge to AM passing. AM is generating hardly any interceptions, 129th in the country, and they also are not generating a lot of sacks, just 98th in sacks generated. Florida's 50th in points per play, AM 42nd in points per play allowed. They play man 33% of the time. They bring pressure about 20% of the time. And so far, they've struggled to cover well when they do bring pressure. They also, and this may or may not matter, have not been good against play action this season. Statistically, of course, most teams are not going to run nearly as many play action plays as Florida does per game, but they have struggled with that. And that is simple to understand, Alan. If I told you why a team might struggle against play action, your first guess would probably be because they don't stop the run very right. well. And that is, in fact, the answer. So, this matchup for Florida, if you want to boil it all down to what would you expect, you would expect that Florida should be able to run the ball with success. And I think it's overly reductive, but also totally true here, Alan, that if Florida cannot run the football in this game, they're going to have a really hard time scoring. Yes. I mean, Ole Miss alternated between being able to run it very effectively and then they really cooled off in the third quarter and a got back in the game. Um, yeah, so can Florida be efficient? Can they bust some big plays? That's going to open things up for them. Um, 
this lines up with what Florida would like to do. I mean, there's been some matchups here. It's like, man, Florida is really up against it because what this other team is good at is what Florida is not good at. And you could see them scoring points against A&M for sure. I mean, I would hope so. I mean, I think I think that, again, Florida has a nice matchup here, but with Florida's passing game being so erratic, so hard to get any read on, it's just really hard to know what to expect from Florida's offense week in and week out. All right, you want to do the categories here? Yeah, special teams, there's a slight edge to A&M. Penalties, there's an edge to Florida. A&M's a heavily penalized team. Of course, Florida had a lot of penalties against Georgia. We didn't talk a lot about that. A lot of you were really frustrated with the calls. They were several horrible calls in that game. I sadly don't think that that would have changed the football game, but those calls were were bad. So if you were wanting that to be said, it has been said. Turnover margin, there's an edge to Florida there, slight, and then time of possession. Both teams are a push. Neither of them are good at T.O.P. at all, which makes sense. They're both bad offenses in general. Um, injury suspensions depth chart. It seems like during this time, Alan, we've had, uh, we've had some news here that I think that Zipperer, did you see this? Yeah. Yeah. Tell us about that. Yeah. It just looks like he is out maybe for the year. Um, so that, that affects Florida's desired, you know, formations. They love to run two tight end, the 12 personnel, uh, I don't know that that's going to be interesting to see what Florida responds. They don't, they don't have a lot of depth. They can't, there's not really other guys that they can go to probably to be as effective. That might just force them into doing something that they don't want to do. Maybe that's more effective. Maybe that's less effective. Who knows? Who knows is right. Uh, certainly though, he is your best and was your best tight end option. He's become a really good blocker. So, you know, Xanders doesn't offer you the same thing. And yes, you're going to have to run out of looks that you're not normally wanting to run out of as much. So yeah, you can still use you know Elksness and and, and others, but well, Elksness, I, I don't know if he's available either. And that's what I was going to say in theory. But then where is he? We haven't seen him. You've basically only really seen Xanders and Zipperer. So this will change things for Florida down the stretch, without a doubt. Okay. Keys to the game. Why don't you go first? Well, defensively, I think Florida in this game is going to have to limit A&M's passing. Uh, we saw with Ole Miss that they were able to pass the ball well, therefore they were able to score. So I think you're going to have to see two turnovers generated from them. I want to see two turnovers, and I want to see 225 passing yards or less, which that's like a fairy tale. That seems absurd um, given Florida's defense. Everyone slings the ball over the yard. They are playing a freshman. We'll find out. And again, these numbers that I'm giving here, Alan, I think are, if this happens, Florida will win. And that's what we're looking for. On offense, I think it's all about the rushing yards. Florida needs to be able to run for more than 200 yards in this football game. If they're able to rush for more than 200 yards, I think they'll be able to, they'll be able to compete in this game and probably take it right down to the wire. So that's what I've got for me. How about you? I can find a lot of avenues for the defense, uh, a defense to be successful against A&M, uh, less for the Gators defense. Um, so third down percentage here, can they keep them sub 40? You know, that should be the expectation against an A&M team who's really struggled. You should be able to confuse a freshman quarterback, especially in an offense as complicated as Jimbo's. Um, I don't know if we'll do that. I'm sure we'll try especially with the type of defense that we would prefer to run. It seems like that might set up well for us, but can we execute it? I don't know. Offense with you. I'm 
we need to be, I'm going to use four and a half yards per carry again. We need to be above that. Um, and I think if we are, I th- Florida can win this game. Um, I think then that you are more efficient in the play action. You're more efficient in the other things that you, that you prefer to do. Um, you can beat A&M doing the stuff you, you want to do. So let's see if you can do it. All right, it is time for your prediction for this football game. Alan, what do you got? So last week when we did the schedule walkthrough, um, we both predicted a loss, so I'm going to stick with that. Um, I, I feel like Florida can definitely win this game, um, but doesn't feel like we're trending in that direction. I'm going to pick 28-24, Texas A&M. All right, 28-24 A&M. And that's funny because, not surprisingly, I have something very similar. <laughs> I have A&M winning 28-20. Uh, to 20. So Florida takes a loss here as well, something we both had predicted before this game occurred. I think this will be the same uh, results, unfortunately, as we had thought before the Georgia game. So I think Florida takes an L. You think Florida takes an L. We will see... What happens? Any final thoughts on this A&M game before we move on to the conclusion of the show with some picks from around the country? This just feels like a game Florida would really want to win. Um, There's no rivalry thing. There's nothing like glaring, right? But we talked about Florida really wanting to split these games with South Carolina. Getting a win here, I think, would provide a lot of momentum. Florida could close the season well. Um you're not in like a valley where you have to like, we need just a miracle. Florida just needs to play well and they can win this game. Yeah, it is. It's winnable. I hope they do. I think for me, if you truly are fixing something, it does get worse before it gets better. That's also a cliche phrase where you could just be taking something that's fine and making it worse or something that's bad and making it even worse. Only time will tell what the truth is. Of course, I think Billy Napier is firmly in the camp now where I feel like he's ready to make things really bad in order to get to a better result. I think that's where his mindset is. I think he's locked into that. I think this is going to be another result where things just get worse in the temporary setting. And it feels like since it's Halloween, today is Halloween. You're listening probably not on Halloween, but regardless, today's Halloween. It feels like this is going to be a purge uh, of the program something that probably needs to be done. And again, this could just make it worse and it stays worse forever. Not every purge works out, but I feel like that's the direction that we're going. And I think this loss is going to further frustrate players. It's going to further cause lack of trust amongst fans. And we're just going to hit the bottom and uh, maybe not at this game, but at some point, but I think that's why it just feels like Florida's heading for a loss. All right. Maybe something a little bit brighter. Sunday news here. HelloFresh, America's most popular meal kit. With HelloFresh, you get farm-fresh pre-proportioned ingredients and seasonal recipes delivered right to your doorstep. You can skip the trips to the grocery store and count on HelloFresh to make home cooking easy, fun, and affordable. That's why it's America's number one meal kit. And if you want 65% off meals from HelloFresh, go to HelloFresh.com slash GNFP65 and use that code GNFP65 for 65% off plus free shipping. That's HelloFresh.com slash GNFP65. All right. It's a fun slate. Week 10. You ready to pick some games? Love it. Let's get into it. All right. Friday night. Number 24, Oregon State at Washington. Who's favored by four and a half? What do you think? 
Washington is a quality football team. They're really good at home. Oregon State, very feisty. I got. I have to make this pick for my boy Parker. He's a longtime listener. His whole family is like, I've mentioned him before, but it's like Oregon State legacies on every side. They played basketball there. They went there. They played multiple sports there. So I got to give him a nod there and, and take Oregon State in this one, giving, getting 4.5 points here. Yeah, I don't know. I don't really trust Oregon State on the road. I don't, I don't either, really trust Washington either, but I'll, I'll go the way and go Washington here. Okay, I like that. I'm, that's All right, B has on here unranked Kentucky. Love that B Red. Nice little troll there. <laughs> Favored by two at Missouri. You know who I'm taking. I already, I already propped them up earlier. I'm taking Mizzou, baby. There's no way they're going to score in that Mizzou defense, and Mizzou's offense is good for 20 points or so a game. That's enough to win. I'll join you there. I, I think this is going to be a very close game. It's kind of a rock fight kind of game, but I'll take Mizzou at home. All right, Oklahoma State down to number 18. Favored by three and a half at Kansas. I have no idea. No idea. My my faith is shaken. My foundation is rocked. Kansas has got to be thinking this is their moment. Three and a half. I just I just have no I have no understanding for what happened in that game. I did not get to watch it. I feel like I'm flying blind. I want to pick Okie State as a bounce back to say this is where a good football team does bounce back. I'm going to do that blindly, but this does not feel good. Yeah, I'll join you there. I, I would not even approach this game from a, actually putting stakes on it. Kansas has been trending in the wrong direction, unfortunately, for them. So, yeah, although they're very capable of winning this game. So, I'll, yeah, I'll go Okie State there. All right. Michigan State, who had a really ugly incident against Michigan after the game in the hallway, at number 14, Illinois. Who's favored by 16 and a half? I mean, <laughs> that, that whole sentence feels crazy. Just the, the wheels of the Mel Tucker $100 million bus are uh, are half off. Players fighting other players. Michigan State's not competitive week in and week out. But meanwhile, on the other side, the Illinois bus is a Rolls Royce right now. Doing things they have never done in the conference with Brett Bielema, who just is born to coach in the Big Ten, apparently. Uh, 16 and a half. And you know what? I think they're going to get it. I'm taking Illinois. Me too, which is crazy. If you had told me, all right, uh, uh, who you got, Illinois State, or Illinois, Michigan State, Illinois, Michigan State's favored by 16 and a half, like at the beginning of the season, like, ah, oh, you know, I don't know, maybe Michigan State. Illinois, great story. All right, Texas Tech at TCU, TCU favored by nine and a half. Can TCU keep doing it? Can they keep doing it? Texas Tech has been a feisty opponent yes. for a lot of teams. They're better at home than they are on the road. Nine and a half, though, feels like too much for me. I'm going to take Texas Tech here. I'm going to join you there. I think this is close, close, close. All right, Baylor, who's been playing better at Oklahoma, who played well last week. Oklahoma's favored by three and a half. Yeah, Baylor's offense has been the problem here, and I think that's why Oklahoma's getting the nod, is they have been scoring on offense. Generally speaking, <laughs> their defense has been the sieve. I'm not touching this one at all. I don't trust any of these teams, but I'm gonna I'm gonna take oh, Oklahoma at home? Question mark. That feels bad. I'll just go the other way and take Baylor. I, I don't feel good about either one of these teams. Yeah, as you Baylor, said, Baylor feels better, but three and a half is like such an insignificant yeah. amount of points. Yeah. All right, Liberty back in the in the hot hot twenty five, number twenty three. Hugh Freeze getting it going at Arkansas, who's favored by fourteen. 
So Arkansas just has generally not been beating people by more than 14. If they do win, they're going to control the line of scrimmage here. They're going to score at will. But I think Liberty is going to put up probably maybe 25 to 30 as well. I like a, a 14 to 13 point spread here. So I'm going to take Liberty. Me too. I, I think they get inside this number. All right. Wake Forest, who got humbled a little bit last week, favored by three and a half at number 21, NC State. I cannot. I don't know where Wake Forest is after that. I want to think that's also an anomaly, just like Okie State playing at NC State, who's been underwhelming and is not going anywhere either. I mean, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to plug my nose here and take NC State. All right, I'm going to take Wake. I think they bounce back a little bit. I think that they're a veteran team. I think they can overcome that. All right, normally the game of the weekend in years past, number six, Alabama, favored by 13 at number 15, LSU. That really shows now what Vegas thinks of LSU and how much better this Brian Kelly football team is. Uh, They're good, and I think Alabama has had struggles. And look, I mean, I've said this. Jaden Daniels is the best quarterback in college football. (laughs) He was playing great. Two weeks in a row. Can he make it three after the bye week? I don't know, but I'm going to take the points here with LSU, which I never would have said preseason or after the first couple of weeks, but I'm going to say it now. This LSU team's a good football team on film, and they're getting better, and I think Bama, until they show me they can be the dominant force they're supposed to be, I'm going to go against them. I think Bama ends up pulling away late and and gets over this number, but I think it's going to be close for most of the game. That's a fun one. That's a fun one right there. I'm glad I'm glad it's competitive again, at least theoretically at this point. Uh Texas at number 13 K-State who favored by 3. I wish I was going second here so I could just pick whatever your opposite Texas pick is. I'm going Kansas State. You don't have to wish you're going I, second. Yeah, you I am. Oh, uh, never second. mind. Yeah, you're in the driver's seat. There it is, K-State. All right, put me on Texas then. Love it. I love you to take Texas there. Forced you into it. <laughs> All right. Yeah. What, I don't know what I was thinking there. I was, I psyched myself out there. All right. Number five, Clemson favored by four at Notre Dame. Well, I took Notre Dame last week because you, you know, you can't just walk into the carrier dome unless you're Notre Dame. And if you're Clemson, you cannot just walk in to South Bend and get a win. You've been flirting with disaster every single week. Marcus Freeman and the boys are ready. And this is their time. I'm taking Notre Dame with the outright win in this one. Congrats to you. I'm going to take Clemson. Uh, I think that number is low enough that I feel comfortable with it. Uh, we're we're a part on most of these picks. We've been together. We'll, we'll, this is gonna be interesting. All right, Florida State favored by eight and a half at Miami, who did not score a touchdown last week. They were in a, like a three overtime rock fight. It's not even the right word with Virginia. I've never felt as confident picking Florida State <laughs> as I do now, which is to say I have still no confidence. But Miami is horrible. I mean, Crystal Ball and that team, they are not even remotely any better than they were last year. They're, if anything, trending downward. They're super lucky they got to win last week. Uh, Florida State's a competent football team. We've been saying it all year long. And you know, eight and a half is an interesting number here, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take Florida State. I'll take Florida State as well. I would not be surprised at all if Miami does something weird and beats them just Concerned is a very weird Florida State team as well. Game of the day, game of the year potentially. Can't wait to hear your pick on this. Number two, Tennessee, who might be number one when the playoff rankings come out tomorrow night. I think they should be. At number one, Georgia, who's favored by eight. You don't even have to know what I'm doing because you know what I'm doing. I'm taking the Tennessee Volunteers, dude. Look, Heupel's my guy. They run the system that I've been running in flag football for, you know, 13 years. 
It's all the same stuff. It's a vertical high low system running air raid concepts, spreading fields as far as you, I mean, spreading teams as far as you can east west, utilizing the entire field. I freaking love it. I can't believe somebody's running it, which is awesome. First of all, to like watch it play out in college football, and they've got it rolling. And look, I saw Georgia on film against Florida. You heard me say there are a lot of receivers running open on moves, and Florida's offense is low ceiling pedestrian route stuff. I don't know that this Georgia team is built to handle what Tennessee's bringing them. And I know for sure that Georgia's offense can be had. I know that. Tennessee's defense is sound. We've always said that they're sound. They lack talent, but they are sound. This is a game that Tennessee can win. No doubt they can win. I don't think this moment's too big for Hooker. I don't think Georgia is going to show him anything he has not seen. That is the ultimate benefit of Heupel's offense. And I want to end my little speech here. The beauty of this offense is because you are spreading teams so far out, there's just not a lot they can do on the back end to confuse you. It doesn't matter who you are. It's just a matter of their talent. Now, the real question is, will Georgia do what needs to be done against Tennessee? Will they play cover zero, cover one way more than anyone has been willing to do except for Pitt? Will they do it more than seven or eight snaps? Because if they do, Georgia can really slow down this Tennessee offense. I have no doubt. They can bracket high it. They can play that cover zero, cover one scenario. They can alternate their looks. I don't think that's what Georgia wants to do. That's not their identity. And therefore, if they come out and try to run that too high zone, Tennessee is going to shred them. You cannot win playing these back end zones. I don't know if it's going to take this entire year of Tennessee doing it before teams recognize they're going to have to man up and play some daggone man. But I don't know that Georgia's got the stones for it, and I'm taking Tennessee. So, I mean, Georgia has the benefit, obviously, of seeing Alabama play them and saying, okay, if we did this, this is what it would be. But they've been really stubborn at times. Super stubborn at times. I was afraid this number was going to be, like, really low. Um, but if you're giving me eight points, I think I have to take Tennessee. Um, and so I'll I'll join you there. Uh Georgia can definitely win this game. They're oh for sure. Like they're 100%. even even all the stuff you just said, they can still win. They're still much more talented. Yes, and you know Hinton Hooker could come back to earth a little bit, throw some interceptions. Um, I, I'm fascinated by it. I can't wait to watch it. Yeah, it should be great. And I think the key in this game is Georgia's going to feel comfortable stopping Tennessee's running game with with six or five in the box. Right. That's why they're going to want to play zone. But it doesn't matter. As long as Tennessee does what they've been able to do, which is give Hooker enough time, those routes are going to come open if you don't play a man because they're running a beater on you every single time. You cannot be right. And it continues to blow my mind that only Pitt knew this. Only Pitt learned the lesson playing them two years in a row that you know what we're not going to do. We're not going to play zones they can run coverage beaters on. And it worked really well. But again, defensive coaches, as we've said all season long, are extremely hard-headed in college football. In the NFL, they're very different. They'll change their entire game plan week to week. But in college, for whatever reason, they really believe their own cooking when it comes to these systems. And I am fascinated by this matchup. I literally cannot wait to watch this one, Alan. This is an all-timer in terms of like scheme and style. This is what you want to see as a football fan. All right, Daytona Steve enters week 10, only taking losses, but he's calling this a no-loss November parlay. 10-team parlay, get ready. No-loss November. All right, we've got Purdue with the points, uh, sorry, favored over Iowa, four and a half over Iowa. We have UNC favored by nine and a half over Virginia. We have Florida and the money line at AM 
Daytona Steve is a madman. We have Baylor at Oklahoma with the over at 57. We have Oklahoma State over Kansas, favored by two and a half. Tennessee at eight and a half over Georgia. You got a nice line. Clemson at three and a half, favored with Notre Dame. Kansas State over Texas money line. Florida State over Miami. And then Wake Forest favored over NC State. That just seems impossible. And why? Because it is. The odds are 911 to 1. 911 is what Daytona Steve should be dialing based upon the number of picks that he has been getting wrong. But perhaps this is the omen he needs on Halloween, a little 911 to 1 action. Of course, I'll post these picks on social media so you can see them if you want to put a dollar on them for fun as well. All right, that's all I've got, Alan. Any other items you have on this pod? Nope, let's shut it down. All right, great. We will get back with you next week after this game and perhaps one piece of Halloween silver lining information. The three-year test exists for a reason. And in reality, you should give your coach the full three years unless there's like a lot of evidence to indicate it's not going to happen, which I think was clear in the Brian Harson case. But regardless of what we've discussed on this podcast, I myself, Alan, personally, am giving Billy three years to do whatever the heck he wants to do unless things go way off the rails. And then we'll see what his formula does. Because forecasting what may happen is generally a fool's errand. Reacting to things is much better. So we'll keep reacting each and every week to the data. But as for me, I'm going to keep letting him do his thing. That's what you can do. Give him enough time to institute his plan. And then we will find out in time if his plan is a good one or a bad one. And sometimes really great plans don't look so good early on. We're going to hope that's the case, but I can't tell you whether or not that is the case. That's what we're here for each and every week. As we get more data, we'll tell you more and more. All right, with that, happy Halloween. Have a great week entering into fall and in November. And we will see you next time.